Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, hey, where you been? Buckeye Talk is about to begin Hey, 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 come on in Welcome back to Buckeye Talk it's cold. You're cold. We're cold. I'm Doug Maurice in my basement. Stephen Means is in a room of his house, and we are not together because nobody wanted to go outside for us to meet up somewhere. Stephen, are you cold where you are, or are you okay? I was freezing when I woke up this morning because I forgot to turn the heat on. Nice. So it was like all types of freezing, but I'm good now. Sun's out. Space heaters on. I'm good. Toasty warm. Toasty warm, and we will warm you up with this Buckeye Talk. Uh, thank you for listening, as always. You can find us on iTunes and uh, Stitcher and anywhere you find you find the finest podcast. We appreciate your patronage. You can also read Stephen and read me at cleveland.com, and we also hope you do that. We are a week away from National Signing Day Part 2 as we record this podcast on Wednesday. In the past, as you know... The first Wednesday in February was practically a national holiday for college football fans. Now, with the early signing period, it's very much anticlimactic. But yet, there are things happening for Ohio State. There are a couple needs that they want to fill. Um, it's not the end of the world. Uh, so we're going to reset the roster and then maybe talk about where they could be headed um, with some guys in the next week. But I think the guy at the top of the list uh, before we, we reset is Doug Nestor, um, someone who's been committed to Ohio State for a very long time. He remains committed to Ohio State, but did not sign in the early signing period. And just, Stephen, as a reset on Doug Nestor, just how, how important do you think it is for Ohio State to add an offensive lineman of his caliber a week from now? How important is it to keep Doug Nestor in this class? extremely important one for the sake of just sheer numbers like they don't have a lot of bodies at the offensive line spot so if somebody does go down and another guy goes down you could be out of luck depending on you know you put this is football guys get hurt so for the sake of just a numbers standpoint you need a guy like doug nester on top of that he's a four-star recruit who's like you said the only guy in the 2019 class so far who has not actually signed some paperwork to come to Ohio State. He's going to be a, he'd be a huge get as a four-star guy to bring a four-star offensive lineman to that fold. 
so um, you know, you you follow things, and and it and it seems like um, certainly Ohio State's still in the mix with Doug Nestor, but I certainly um, you would not characterize him as a sure thing at this point. Penn State is interested. Virginia Tech is interested. And Stephen, I just don't know what to think when. When you have any kid in a situation like this, and clearly, and I think we've stated this before, and I want to reset something after we talk about Doug Nestor, but when you have a kid who was committed and chose not to sign in the early signing period, you know, this is nice. The kids have an option now um, if they want to sign early and get locked in and sort of protect themselves and, and get rid of the drama, they can sign in the early signing period in December. If they want to wait and keep their options open, they can wait until February, but Stephen, when you have a guy who's committed but doesn't sign, I mean, you have to be wondering, like, are they actually going to be able to hold on to this guy? Because if he was sure of what he wanted to do, he would have signed in December, right? So there has to be some worry here on Ohio State's part. I think it's a couple of things. One, I think it's understandable because of their situation. He, you know, They have a new coach. And so there's... there's he committed to play for Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer's not here. So there's that element to it. So there's probably a little bit of understanding that, okay, I have to get to know a brand new head. I got, even though Dave was on the staff, he's in a whole different position now. Also, I think what worries the most is, like, he's going on these visits. He came to Columbus on January 18th. He went to Penn State on the 25th. And on Saturday, he'll be in Virginia Tech. So I think the fact that he's still taking a lot of these visits, and yeah, he's committed, but the fact that he's still kind of operating – as if he's not committed anywhere and he's still, you know, weighing his out, which he is, but, like, as if the Ohio State commitment doesn't exist is how he, he seems to be operating. I think that's where things can get the most worrisome is, you know, he talked to, he came to Columbus on the 18th. Well, last Friday he was in Pennsylvania. He'll be at Virginia Tech on Saturday. So he's still kind of operating kind of down to the last moment. Yeah, and which is like great for the kid, right? I mean, that's in all this process. Keep you know, get all the information that you can get. Take all the time you want to take. It's not great for the team, you know. They'd love to have him locked up already, and they don't. Um, Let's especially because of the number situation. Right, we've got eighty three scholarship players right now. (laughs) It it would be helpful for Ohio State to know whether or not this kid's coming or not, so they know what they can do with the last two or one spot left on their roster. Yeah, and, and we'll get into some of the other offensive linemen they're looking at because clearly they, they seem to maybe have a pecking order with the offensive line. I think even if they sign Nestor, they would be interested in, in another one or two of these offensive line possibilities. Um, it, it seems like with, with what could happen yet, obviously the focus is offensive line, and then they're going to add a quarterback one way or the other, whether it's somehow – a high school kid that they sign, or more likely it's a grad transfer. They just need another body in that quarterback room. I think that might be the only areas where they wind up. They've looked at some secondary guys, but I don't think there's much of a need there. Um, so as we get ready to reset this, Stephen, is that is that what it feels like, offensive line and a quarterback? Or do you think that there's maybe another position of need that they could wind up signing a kid for a week from now? I doubt it because... It- the, the early signing period has kind of taken away a lot of that like speculation because you see a lot of those types of guys be the talent or whatsoever you want to call it signed during the early signing period and it, it's turned this like the January the February signing period into basically okay we pretty much know what we have but and what else we need and so now you're just kind of you know plugging holes at this point. 
There, there are a couple big name guys out there, but not many. For instance, I was trying to look at um, quarterback options, right? High school quarterback right. options that would be out there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Of the top 75 high school quarterbacks on the 247 sports recruiting rankings, only eight are unsigned. And several of those eight still seem like hard commits to the school's that they're committed to, they just haven't signed yet. So, like, that doesn't feel like really an area where they're going to go find a high school quarterback. And there hasn't been a lot of talk of that, it seems like, that, you know, again, you you get this late in the process and you get caught a little bit. You don't want to reach, right? You have to fill needs on your roster, but you don't want to reach for kids that you really think have a very low chance of ever helping you in some substantial way because, it fills a spot now, but now two years from now, you may end up with a kid on your roster who's just not a good fit here, who's taken up a scholarship. So, what what's your take, Stephen? Sort of on the idea of of needing to fill out your roster with bodies at certain positions versus the idea of maybe feeling like you're reaching on a guy. I'd rather if if I'm gonna fill with bodies, especially at the quarterback position at this point, it might be better to get a grad transfer. And I think that for any position, if you're just trying to fill for the sake of like, you know, needing someone to fill that scholarship spot for that season, then yeah, a grad transfer is probably the better option than it is to go try to get a high school guy who like we just, Keandre Jones is a perfect example of this where he was a top 100 recruit when he got here. And now he's gone simply because he couldn't get on the field in two years. So and I don't. That's like not something you want to run into. And obviously, that's a you know, isolated example. But that's just an issue that you don't want to run into. Where you're bringing in a high school guy who has the mindset that eventually in this next one to two years I'm going to be seeing the field, and then they don't see the field, and you end up they end up transferring anyway. It's almost better if if you're going to just bring in a guy for the sake of like having another guy. It's almost better to get a guy that you know he's only going to be here for a year anyway. So then you get that scholarship back. Yeah, no, I think you're right. It's just a, it's a it's a shorter term commitment, and a guy, a guy like uh, Chris Chuganoff at quarterback, who's the grad transfer they brought in last year from West Virginia, he knows it. And there's no there's no plan in the world for Ohio State where he's ever going to see the field. If he is taking significant snaps for Ohio State, disastrous things have happened. But but they need a body, so he's here. That's fine. It's no slight on him. It's just reality. But that's where they are with the quarterback position, too. And so you'd rather take a guy like that for a year or two than a guy like that for four years, potentially. And so they're going to have to reset this quarterback recruiting that they have Justin Fields, they have Matthew Baldwin, and then when they have Jack Miller already committed for the class of 2020, he seems like a very solid commit from Arizona. He's going to be here, and then you can start lining up those quarterbacks again. But at the moment... They're in a little bit of desperation mode. And the other thing, too, Stephen, is like, so there are some grad transfer quarterbacks out there. And I keep saying we're going to reset. We are going to reset, but we're sort of on the quarterback question now. There's this guy named Nick Starkle from Texas A&M who is out there as a potential um, grad transfer quarterback that has been mentioned. But if you were a grad transfer, Stephen, would you want to come here? Would you want to come where it's like, well, Justin Fields is going to be the quarterback and they seem to like Matthew Baldwin behind him. That I mean, I, just to me, like, okay, they need a body, but they're not really going to get anybody that can really play because if you can play, you're not going to come here, right? Yeah, there, there, there's also some guys looking down at this list. You know, Quentin Maxwell, he's in, he goes, he's 
transferring from Ohio. He almost seems like the perfect like person there for a body. You don't really want him on the field. He's not talented enough to like get on the field, but he's a body in that position. I don't know what in Nick Starkle's position, he's probably still thinking that like there's a school out there that he can get on the field for. But if you go get a guy from a mid major school maybe, you know, they're not thinking they're gonna get on the field in the next at all in their career if they go if they go especially if they come up to a power five conference. Yeah, they come, they can run the scout team, they can be part of the program. There's a lot of positives to it, but you're not gonna get on the field. I remember back, and we we wrote a lot about this. We sort of had some disagreements with some people about it, but Stephen Collier was a guy who was a reach for them out of high school from Georgia, and he was on this roster. And I remember like in, in 2014 when they were making this national title run, and they got to the point that after Braxton Miller was hurt and then JT Barrett was hurt and Cardale Jones was starting, and it was like, well, who would play quarterback if Cardale Jones got hurt? And they were going to play Jalen Marshall at quarterback, who was a receiver but was a high school quarterback, ahead of Stephen Collier, who was a high school quarterback who was on the quarterback at that time. He was very young, but he was on the roster as a quarterback, and it was like, well, if Cardale hurts, we're not playing the guy who's a quarterback. Like, he just, he wasn't in that position. And Stephen Collier graduated from Ohio State. Everybody loves him. He was a great teammate. I think he got a lot out of coming to Ohio State, but they never wanted to play him. He was never going to play here. So whatever their market is for a quarterback right now, the market is the never going to play, but we need you in case we just need an 11th body on the field quarterback. And that's not really a market you want to be in, but it, it is the market they are in. So I think to your point, Stephen, you want to live in that world for a year or two, not for three or four years with a guy taking up a roster spot. 83, Stephen, is the number, and you mentioned this earlier. 83 is where they are right now, and we'll reset that scholarship number because there was an adjustment, and I double-checked it today. Since we spoke a week ago, that is removing Keandre Jones from our scholarship count, and we had him still on the scholarship list last week because even though he was in the transfer portal, he was still here, so we didn't take him off yet. So we have now taken Keandre Jones off now that he has officially transferred to Maryland, but also, I did not have C.J. Saunders, the walk-on receiver who had become a scholarship player, on my previous list. I wasn't sure where he stood with things in terms of coming back as a senior on scholarship. Um, Ohio State is assuming that is the case with him, though. So C.J. Saunders goes back on the count. He was not on our count previously. So they've lost Keandre Jones, but they've added C.J. Saunders. If you want to Google, again, Ohio State Football Scholarship Chart 2019, it will take you to our story on Cleveland.com. It's a standing piece. They're at 83 right now. I always talk about the guys that you could imagine transferring. That, that number's getting lower because guys like Keandre Jones have already left. Just my estimation, there are three names among the 83 that Certainly could be a reasonable transfer in my mind. I'm not going to name them. You can go to the list and figure it out. But I don't think they're going to necessarily sign, assuming any of those guys are leaving. So if they're at 83 right now, Stephen, I guess it seems to me like we're thinking they're going to add maybe three guys. I don't know if they could go to four. But it seems like maybe there's a world where if they have to add a quarterback, and that gets them to 84, and if they keep Nestor, that's 85, and then maybe one more lineman, that would be 86, and it would mean one other person has to leave as a transfer. Is that the number fans should be thinking about 
probably adding three more guys, or do you think they maybe could go higher than that, assuming other transfers? Three, three and out. I think I think three and one guy transfers that has yet to be named yet. I think even Brian Day said that um, during the early period they didn't like they weren't expecting to add that many more guys. Obviously, the quarterback situation where they want to have at least four guys at the quarterback position at all times. But other than that, I don't think they're going to be adding too many more bodies to this roster outside of what they need, and that's live at a quarterback. So they have three quarterbacks right now. They have to get to four. They have five running backs right now. Um, they're going to have to hit running back in the future. It's going to be really interesting. Right now, they, they're they going to have two junior running backs on the roster um, in 2019 with Demario McCall and J.K. Dobbins. If somehow, like, both those guys didn't come back for 2020, they would get really young at, at running back really quickly because behind McCall and Dobbins, the other three scholarship running backs right now are Master Teague, who redshirted this year, and then true freshman Steel Chambers, and Marcus Crowley. So, like, you're you're in a lot of wondering about things. Brian Sneed is gone. He's been removed from the team. He's, I think, at a junior college, it's been reported. He's off our scholarship count. So, all of a sudden, Master Teague is really, 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 really important to the future of Ohio State running backs. I don't, I don't want to go in depth this much with every position. They have 12 receivers. They're set. They're fine. They have veterans. They have guys in the middle. They have a bunch of young guys. They're good at receiver. They have five tight ends right now. They're good at tight end. Again, they have veterans. They have Jeremy Ruckert on the way up. They're fine there. Offensive line is where they're short. 11 scholarship offensive linemen, as you mentioned, Stephen. I think they'd like to be at like 14, 15. Sometimes I think they've been as high as like 16. So that is really short there. That's why we're talking about adding offensive linemen. They have nine defensive ends. They're good. They have veterans like Jonathan Cooper and Chase Young. They have young guys like Zach Harrison and Noah Potter. They're good there. Defensive tackle. I think they're waiting for some guys to emerge, but they have some really good young players there. Haskell Garrett, Tommy Togiai, Teron Vincent. Really good there. Linebacker, I think they're fine. They have a group of these young guys. Toronto Mitchell, Dallas Gant, Kayvon Pope, and then some of these uh, young freshmen they just signed. They're good there. I think maybe they could use a corner. The, the seven cornerbacks they have right now, Damon Arnett, Jeffrey Okuda, Marcus Williamson, Sean Wade, Seven Banks, who people like, Cam Brown, and Tyreek Johnson. I think they have they have a good balance there of veterans and young guys. I think maybe they could use a corner if there was one out there that fit perfectly and they could squeeze them in. Maybe they would. And then safety, I think they're okay. Jordan Fuller as a veteran. Brendan White came on. Josh Proctor is an interesting young guy. Marcus Hooker, Ronnie Hickman, Bryson Shaw. Some interesting young guys. So I think the roster's okay, but you can see that need for offensive line. And just as I went through that, Stephen, were there any other positions that, that maybe popped on your radar as any kind of point of concern beyond quarterback and offensive line? Or do you feel like that they have a pretty good balance and pretty good depth at the other positions? I think it's decent for now. The one I would say defensive tackle would, would, would probably be the one I'm a little interested in just because, you know, like I said, with the offensive line and what they're running into his numbers, I think that might be the same thing with them. But it's also not nearly as many you know, defensive tackles on the field as it is offensive linemen, but I think that would be the one position outside of running back that would I would pay attention to this, to see what they do in the next upcoming classes in 2020 and 2021. So, like, they, they have a couple seniors there in Robert Landers and mm-hmm. Davon Hamilton. Um, Antoine Jackson is a guy who's a transfer from Auburn who hasn't gotten on the field here yet. 
Um, Jerron Cage is a guy who hasn't gotten on the field here yet. But I do think they're they're in a position where, and it's like I call them young guys. Haskell Garrett's going to be a junior, but like Haskell Garrett, Tommy Togiai, and Teron Vincent were all pretty highly recruited guys at defensive tackle who um, have not have played in a rotation situation as young guys so far, but have not been leaned on as much. They leaned on Draymond Jones a lot. Robert Landers is a guy they've leaned on. Um, Davon Hamilton had a lot of important snaps last year. I'll be very curious if all three of those young guys and Garrett, Togiai, and Vincent are able to become like really impactful guys. I think Vincent and Togiai are are certainly on the path for that. And um, as true sophomores, I mean, that's <clears throat> one of the things that's, you know, it happens here all the time. And I'm trying to think it's maybe, I don't know, like, I don't think it happened this year, which is actually, which is, which is part of what surprised me about this year, that I was waiting for the 2017 class for guys to burst on the scene as sophomores. Um, and like Jeffrey Okuda was good and Chase Young was good and, and Baron Browning was in and out of the lineup and was hurt, but None of those guys were all Americans. You know, Chase Young was very good. He had the double the double ankle sprain for part of the year, as you wrote about, Stephen. There is a history here of guys going from not playing very much to being all Americans the first time they start. James Laurinaitis did it. Malik Hooker did it. Marshawn Latimer did it. I'm very curious, and we're getting off recruiting for a second, but I'm very curious to see what type of guys like that we might see this coming year the 2017 guys are going to be juniors, so it's time for them to do that. But the 2018 guys as second-year players, I mean, absolutely there's a world to me where, where someone like Vincent or someone like Togiai or someone like Nicholas Petit-Frere, if he wins the starting right tackle job, or I'm trying to think, someone like, I don't know, Marcus Hooker or Josh Proctor, there are guys like that who could go from basically doing nothing. Toronto Mitchell, I think, at linebacker is a guy like that guys who haven't really done anything, to being stars. And I think when Ohio State is at its best, that's what happens. It didn't really happen that much last year. How important do you think that is in Ryan Day's first year for some of these, especially 2018 guys, to go not just from not playing to contributing, but going from not playing to being like impact players? Huge, just because, like you said, they leaned on a lot of the other older guys this past year, like Draymond Jones. I think Chase Young was the guy who... He stepped into that position, but a lot of that was forced simply because all of a sudden Nick Bosa just wasn't on the field because he got hurt. I think this year it's going to be huge to get guys who aren't necessarily on team scouting reports from day one to like step up and kind of you know, turn themselves into all-American caliber players because, like you said, that's Ohio State has made a living off of kind of doing that where they've got guys where one year they're – sitting on the bench probably playing a little bit of special teams in the next year there, you know, all-conference, all-American, NFL-type guys. Let's talk about some of these offensive linemen now. We'll get back to signing day a little bit more, and then again, we're going to get to basketball, and we're going to get to some of your questions, as always. But, Stephen, um, we've talked about the importance of Doug Nestor. Their first priority and first choice would be to lock down Doug Nestor and add him to this offensive line group. That would bring him to 12 uh, scholarship offensive lineman on the roster. Again, I think 13 or 14 is r- probably where they really want to be. Um, instead of that, there's a couple guys out there. I think maybe the, the most interesting is Enoch Vamahi from Hawaii, who recently took an official visit to Ohio State. He's still projected by most recruiting analysts as going to USC, 
but he's a guard. He's an inside guy. He's a top 150 national recruit. I think one of the things that people always talk about is these out-of-state kids and Hawaii is off the continent, but he has to get on a plane. His parents have to get on a plane to see him no matter what. And so, yes, it's farther to Columbus than it is to L.A. if people are thinking about USC for him, but Oklahoma is also interested in him, and it's like, you know what? We're flying anyway, so we have to fly to L.A. and then transfer to a flight to Columbus. No big deal. Like, how big of a deal do you think getting a guy like that would be? Again, I think they maybe need some tackles, but certainly to get a top 150 guy this late in the process seems like that would be a, a big deal, especially if they lose Nestor. Right. Uh, if he pulls this one off, he's showing he's a pretty impressive like recruiter as a head coach so far with Zach Harrison and Justin Fields, and he'll go get another 150, top 150 guy, Ina Bahimi. Bahimi. Sorry. Um, yeah, it's it's yeah. I think I yeah. He's from Hawaii. Uh, he understands that yeah, stupid yeah. people like us can't say his name sometimes. I mean, he's got a cool name. I've got a pretty simple name. My name is Stephen Means. So, yeah, like, he's got a pretty cool name. So, but I think he'd be huge. I think one of the because USC over like history has always gotten these really really talented guys from Hawaii. So to pull that and have him come all the way east, where it's negative two degrees on a Wednesday in January, while in Los Angeles is probably. 54 degrees in Hawaii, probably warmer than that. That's a huge get for them to get to pull him all the way this way. Now, right now, the crystal ball prediction for him is 86%. USC, like you said, 7% Oklahoma. And then the other 7% is undecided. So we'll see what happens in the next seven days here. But that would be a huge get for Ohio State just from a simple point of where they're getting this guy from, along with the fact that he's a four-star guy. His pinned his pinned tweet on Twitter, if you want to follow him, <laughs> yeah. at E-N-O-K-K-V-I-M-A-H-I, is I am 100% not committed to any school, y'all. So he in is making In all caps with the double exclamation point in red. So he is making that point very clear, and then you don't have to go down very far to see his tweets from January 28th, which is two days ago, from his official visit to Ohio State. He's standing on the field in Ohio Stadium. He's in an Ohio State uniform with his mom. Um, you know, th- they're in on this kid. They're in the mix. He also has tweets about USC right below that. So all these kids, they like to tweet about the different attention they're getting from different schools. But he tweeted on January 26th, enjoying the stadium and the snow, and then tweeted three Buckeyes at Ohio Stadium. And that's him and his mom on the field at Ohio Stadium. So he's leaning in, right? He understands what the deal is, right? I mean, he's not afraid of the snow, baby. No, but he doesn't have to lie and say he's enjoying it. I'm from here and I'm not enjoying it. So you don't have to lie. So, um, but the lies make the fans feel better, Stephen. The lies are are reassuring to the recruiting people. Um, So they're in it on this guy. And that's one of those things. And I think the point you made, and, and there's something I want to get to about what this class means. If you go and all of a sudden you get in the mix for a kid who's been locked somewhere else for a long time, and it seems like, you know, again, USC, for the reasons you said, a lot of kids from Hawaii go to schools like that. If for Ohio State to jump in and pull him late would be, that's a different level of recruiting, that you're, you're, you had a lot of ground to make up, you had a pitch that you could sell. And sometimes, Stephen, this is one of those where, the numbers, the like the bad numbers can work in your favor because you can say, dude, we only have 11 scholarship offensive linemen. Like you slide right into our depth chart 
very quickly and we can show you how you go right here, boom, 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 you're a starter as a redshirt sophomore. There's nobody else who's going to take your job because we're low. So that happens a lot in basketball too. You sell your low numbers as part of your pitch because there's a path to the field for a guy like this. And I think maybe that could be part of the selling point on this. Um, a couple other guys, more local. There's an Indianapolis kid and there's a Dayton Dunbar kid. Uh, do, do these two guys, the first one is Dewand Jones from Indy who is getting a lot of attention late. He has said his top five is Ohio State, Florida, Penn State, USC, Indiana. He just had some pictures up lately of himself on an Indiana visit. And then there's Jonathan Allen from Cincinnati, who's a really good basketball player and came to football late. It seems like these guys are in the mix. Maybe they're, maybe Ohio State's preference is Vamahi and Nestor, but if they don't go two for two there, it feels like these other two guys enter the picture. Yeah, man. If you don't get the four-star guys, you still need somebody to fill that spot. So you go get a three-star guy. And Dewan Jones seems like he's all in on Ohio State. So it, it literally seems like he's waiting. He's also waiting to see what Nestor and Imam here are going to do. And if Jonathan Allen seems – Jonathan Allen's crystal ball seems to be more all over. But right now it's 56% Cincinnati, 22% Ohio State, 22% undecided. So it seems like Jones is, is all in on Ohio State. It's more them him waiting on them to pull the trigger while – Allen is still kind of you know, weighing his options. I, I do think maybe we talked about three. I think maybe the way they get to f the w way they end up with four more guys, which would require two more transfers from the current roster, is the quarterback, and somehow they keep Nestor and get Vamahi and Dewan Jones. I think if that's the world where that all comes together. I think maybe they would take all three of those offensive linemen. Um, I think they're in a spot. If Nestor's here, Nestor's here. They're uh, obviously um, Nestor's committed to them. They have to be operating under the idea that Doug Nestor's going to be a Buckeye. I think Vamahi as a top one hundred and fifty guy. If you can pull a guy like that this late, and then it's one of those that might open a recruiting door for you. They're always very good at opening new recruiting doors, even if it's a small window. But all of a sudden, you're pulling a kid from Hawaii. Maybe that gets you in on another guy or two from Hawaii, right? So I think if, if he wants to come here, they'll take him. But I do think a guy like Dewan Jones or Allen, those are tackles. I think they could use that. Both of them are a little more of a project, but I think they'd still be interested in that. So I do think there's a world where Jones, Vamahi, Nestor, and a quarterback gets you to what would be 87 right now, and then you're looking for two other guys to move on. I think that would be possible because I think the need on offensive line is that great. Yeah, and like the need is tackles, but also, what's your opinion on getting a need versus getting a guy with talent, especially on the offensive line where we've seen Ohio State, you know, put guys in, like Michael Jordan, Jordan played out of position this year, and you've seen them do that with other guys. Like, what? What's your thoughts on just like Mahomes a guard, but they need tackles, but he's the more talented guy between the fourth. Yeah, I mean, I think there is a way of doing business at Ohio State and all the elite programs where if a talented guy wants to come, you find a way to get him in. And so I think Vamahi would fit into that world, right, where you want to keep Nestor, you really feel like you need to add a tackle, but if there's a guard 
who's a top 150 national player that all of a sudden is interested in you, you find a way to make that happen. And that might not be great. Like all of a sudden you've really got to encourage somebody else to leave. Um, but that's how that normally goes that I think they are at a point, especially with the later signing period where need becomes more of an issue, but you never turn away talent. So there might be some of these, if it's sort of the, some of these tackles um, who are more of a three-star variety, maybe they they say, well, we don't have a spot for you, but I just think uh, uh, this this kid's ranked number 124 in this class, this late in the game. If they've put enough effort into him to get him on an official visit here, that's where it's not the 100% need, but it's kind of a need, and the talent's high enough, you don't turn your back on that. So you'd find a way to make it happen. Um, and they're willing, for the right guy, for the right guy, they're always willing to squeeze. I think over time, I've come to the idea that Ohio State is not in the business of oversigning as a matter of course, but when the opportunity presents itself for what to get what they think is an impact guy, they will find a way to make it happen. Jonathan, I just wanted to cover one more thing on Jonathan Allen. We, we actually have a story on our site on Jonathan Allen from last year uh, when Bill Landis was still with us. He's an interesting guy from Dayton Dunbar. He's a really, really good basketball player. And this is all in the story that he came to football late, um, that he kind of was like, well, I kind of might be good at football, even though I'm sort of a basketball guy. I guess I'll play football because maybe it's going to open some doors for me. And so... He, he is a different kind of recruit, but I'm always on record as saying sometimes these late-in-the-game Ohio kids, you give them a shot and they work out for you. I do think um, if Jonathan Allen would wind up here, he, he wouldn't be a guy necessarily that would get on the field very quickly maybe, but I think Ohio State's done a pretty good job with some of these big tackles um, and, and finding ways to develop them, so... If, if if that's where they land, if, if maybe Vamahi or Nestor or one of the two doesn't work out, I think that would be a very reasonable thing for them. And again, taking a shot on an in-state kid who wants to be here is never a bad thing, in my opinion. I agree. That's an interesting thing to see that kind of go that way. Usually you see guys, he's 6'6", 315 pounds, which is pretty big for a basketball player, but you usually see the other way around where guys start in football figure out they're pretty good at basketball and switch that way. So it's interesting to see that kind of work the other way around. And you see it, I mean... Dunbar, where Dunbar is pretty, like, known for their basketball program. But that that size, that's like, I mean, that's like a dream tackle size with what Ohio State does now, that that long, lean tackle. Um, They certainly could find a way to work with him. The other guy that I think is worth talking about, and you wrote a, you had a post on this when he... um, Got on the radar for Ohio State, Jonah Jackson, and again, I think this may be more of a fallback position. It seems like um, if they miss on a couple of these other guys, he's a grad transfer from Rutgers. Um, he just talked to our affiliate at NJ.com for a story that just went up. I think either yesterday or today. He's talking about this process. He's he's started at Rutgers. He's a grad transfer. Um, Alabama has called him. Michigan has called him. Ohio State is at the top of his list as possibilities. Uh, he's a guy who could come in. If he winds up here, I think he would be on the depth chart right away. I think he'd be on the two deep at the very least um, in 2019. And with only one returning starter, he very well would be in the mix, um, maybe for a starting job right away. I don't, I don't think they have to get him, but I think if they miss on a couple of the other guys, he would be in that mix. How important do you think 
potentially a grad transfer would be, Stephen, with the idea that, you know, only, again, only 11 scholarship linemen, but of those 11, like seven of them are really young, too. Do you think they could use a grad transfer there? Yeah, like for a number standpoint, I, like, you throw, like you just said, he'll probably be on the 2D depth chart from the get-go, which is huge for a team that's going to who already is low on numbers at the offensive line position, and then the numbers they have, a lot of them are younger. So to have an older guy come in and be able to play right away would be huge for Allstate. All right, this is the big picture thing I want to get to on recruiting, and then we'll get into some basketball stuff. But, Stephen, as as we uh, evaluate Ryan Day and this new coaching staff um, heading to this signing day a week from now, how much should people take away from how they close this class, how much will that tell us about Ryan Day and these assistants in terms of their recruiting acumen, or how much is this not really a fair evaluation of the staff in terms of their ability on the recruiting trail? I don't think we're going to get a fair evaluation on this staff until 2020, um, but you know, who cares about what's fair? I think what it will do is give you an, a takeaway, a, a idea of what things are going to look like because even with the early signing period a lot of those guys are still urban Meyer guys and all he his job in that situation was just literally to like hold on to these guys and just don't lose them he didn't like a lot of those were urban Meyer those guys who committed to play for urban Meyer and they agreed to continue to stay committed to Ohio State I think the Zach Harrison one was huge because that one was he committed after Ryan Day and I think the Justin Fields one was huge because he transferred here after Ryan Day happened. So I think closing it out, I think you'll just get an idea of like what they, how they can recruit. And then in 2020, you'll see how good of a recruit uh, of recruiters that this coaching staff is. I do think um, that, that there definitely is a difference with that, right, Stephen, that I agree with you. It's, mm. You can't get a definitive takeaway on the staff based on this. But there are legitimate needs. Like they, they have to get some guys. Like Just in the here and now with what we talked about with their roster needs, they've got to get some work done. So um, they're, they're, they have work to do, but I think your point about if they could pull Vamahi basically out of nowhere, all of a sudden he gets on their radar and they, they get a guy like that. That would be a big plus for them down the road. But as a fan, don't get too wound up in how this finishes. If they don't get Nestor, you have to always assume you're going to lose guys when there's coaching transition. That would not be that big of a deal. And I just wanted to remind people that, um, again, right now as things stand, with the 247 uh, overall recruiting ratings, Ohio State on the overall number of points in the class has the number 12 class, excuse me, the number 13 class in the country. But if you go by the average rating of each player, again, this Ohio state class is smaller by average player rating. They are third in the country only behind Alabama and Georgia. So when you have a class with Garrett Wilson, with Harry Miller, with Zach Harrison, that is going to be a highly rated class. It's just smaller than usual. And so we're going to have a final talk about recruiting rankings a week from now. When you hear all that stuff, Ohio State ranked 13th or 12th or 10th or 11th, wherever they end up, just remember it's smaller than usual. And the overall star rating, overall ranking of the individual players is, is 
often a better way to determine how good a class is. They're third right now. Along those lines, they did just reset some of the 247 rankings, and some of the Ohio State guys did drop. I think a couple moved up, but like just as a point of information, Zach Harrison was like a top five player basically the whole year. In the composite 247 rankings, he's now number 12. Garrett Wilson is now number 20. Harry Wilson, excuse me, Harry Miller is now number 30. So as things stand now, three players in the top 50 in this Ohio State class. And just talking about some of the guys they're looking at, if they signed, um, what did I write this down? If they signed Vamahi, he would be the seventh highest rated player in this class. So that would tell you how good of a prospect this guy is. Um, they only have six guys in the top 200 right now. Beyond the three I just named, Harrison, Wilson, Miller, they also have Jamison Williams, Cade Stover, and Ronnie Hickman are the only six guys in the top 200. Vamahi's in the top 200. So he would become the seventh highest rated guy in this class. So I think that's a big one to watch. Um, keeping Nestor in the class would be a big deal. Um, but they're, they're just not going to be as highly rated in the overall numbers as they usually are. And I just want to reset one more time. There's some other schools in the Big Ten that are getting some work done. Um, again, just as you hear recruiting rankings in the next week, overall recruiting rankings by the total points for a class. Michigan's one in the Big Ten, Penn State two, Ohio State three, Nebraska four, Purdue five, Wisconsin six, Michigan State seven. So just a very interesting thing to keep in mind what Scott Frost at Nebraska and Jeff Brom at Purdue are doing. Two very interesting young offensive innovators in this conference who are also getting it done on the recruiting trail. That's something to keep in mind for the future as you think about the Big Ten. So Michigan, Penn State, Ohio State, Nebraska, Purdue, your top five right now. Um, everybody's still in on some more guys going forward, but we will reset this all signing day a week from today. A week from this Wednesday, uh, we don't know for sure yet if we're going to get Ryan Day, if we're going to be talking about this stuff, but it will be putting a final lid on what's going on with this class and Ryan Day's you know, kind of one-third of a recru recruiting class as he took this over. Um, so it's a big deal. Urban Meyer's first class was the 2012 class after he took over in late in 2011. There was a lot of scrambling in that 2012 class. They flipped a lot of guys late. Um Savon Pittman, Kyle Dodson, like a lot of guys that were big names at the moment, then that class ended up having a lot of misses. The real class that defined Urban Meyer was his first full class when he had a year to do it, and that was the 2013 recruiting class. It's one of the great recruiting classes in college football history. That is what the 2020 class can be and needs to be for Ryan Day. All right. Basketball. Steven, do they still have a basketball team at Ohio State? <laughs> they have a team, but they're not playing well at all. They, they they finished out the month of January 1-6, and six, which was after they beat Nebraska, was to be expected. I don't think anybody who doesn't live under a rock expected them to be able to beat Michigan. Michigan pretty much had their way with them last night. Xavier Simpson, who's an Ohio guy, recorded the sixth triple-double in Michigan basketball history. And he had to chase down Brockle block on Caleb Wesson, which is interesting because Simpson might be six foot in, in boots, while Caleb Wesson is 6'8", 250 plus pounds. But, um, look, 
this is a re- whether Chris Holtman wants to like come out and absolutely say this or not. I don't think he wants to or can just because of the simple fact that he's the coach. I'm not the coach. I'm just gonna say it. This is a rebuilding year for Ohio State. Um, last year, Chris Holtman came into a team who had an abundance of experienced guys who didn't want to end their Ohio State careers on a negative note, and it ended up in a second-round loss in the NCAA tournament. This year, they started out really, really well, but they weren't really playing talented basketball teams. I think the Cincinnati win was a solid win because it was at Cincinnati. The Creighton win was a solid win because it was at Creighton. I think they lost a winnable game to Syracuse at home, um, and they played two of the lower-level Big Ten teams in December. Other than that, they, they didn't really play a lot of talent. And Chris Holman has even said that. You know, in January they started playing tougher competition, and it showed in a one and six record. And I think this month is over with. I think it's kind of a sigh of relief for them that they're finally out of this month, and hopefully they can kind of reach start things in February, but there's still some ranked teams on their schedule in the month of February. I don't think this team is going to get into the NCAA tournament. I I know there's a lot of bracketeers out there, and as Ohio State's been in this slump, um, I think I saw something the other day that someone thought maybe 10 Big Ten teams would get in the tournament, and Ohio State was still on that list. Ohio State, in your mind, has sort of slid off that list with the loss to Michigan? Yeah, I think not even just the loss of Michigan, the fact that they got blown out and the fact that one guy on Michigan's team had more assists than Ohio State's entire team while they turned the ball over 19 times. I don't see a road where, unless they win the Big Ten tournament, they can get into the NCAA tournament because the lowest seeds you usually see from Power 5 conferences is 10. Uh, last week, Joe Lenardi had Ohio State at 10. Right now, they're in, they moved up to 9, which is interesting. I Part of it is, I think, the fact that they are in the Big Ten, which is the best conference in the country right now, and so their net rating is a 38, which is, you know, the net rating is pretty much the new RPI in today's game of how you, you know, measure a team, whether or not they're a tournament team or not. And I think right now the fact that they're in a, the best conference in the country, they're kind of getting the benefit of the doubt because they started out 12-1, and one, even though they weren't playing a high level of talent. You started out 12-1, and one, and at one point you were ranked 15th in the country. And I think right now they're getting kind of that benefit of the doubt that, oh, they struggled because they're young and they're in the best conference in the country. I think by the end of this month, I don't think people are going to be looking at this team as a tournament team. Okay, okay. Um, specifically, I wanted mm-hmm. to ask about Caleb Wesson. Um, he is a guy... Uh, he's Ohio State's leading scorer, averaging almost 15 points per game. Um, they they certainly um, need him in a lot of ways. He had 31 against Youngstown State. He had 25 when they lost to Michigan State. But the last six games, let's go the last five games. Last five games, he scored 2, 11, 6, 7, and 12. Um how reliable do you feel like Caleb Wesson is as the leading scorer on this Ohio State team? And again, looking forward, and I think it's worth looking forward, um, not that this is a lost season. They can get some good wins, and who knows. But when you think about Ohio State next year, uh, and they're going to add some things, and I want to talk about that, what can Caleb Wesson develop into, and what, what are you maybe worried about as he seems to have hit a little slump here? I think his biggest problem 
is he can't stay on the floor because of foul trouble. I think, and that's a huge thing when you're as a big guy. He's you know he's a huge individual, six nine, two hundred and seventy pounds, and he's your leading scorer, and he's amazing, and he's he's very productive when he's on the floor. The problem is he can't stay on the floor. Nine times in the last ten games, he's reached four fouls, and he's fouled out twice, three times during that span. And I think the problem is Ohio State doesn't have anything outside of him as a consistent scoring threat. Luther Muhammad had 24 points against Nebraska, and then he didn't score against Michigan. I think next year, I don't know if, like, in today's game, if you can run an offense through a traditional big that you have in Caleb Weston, especially when he can't stay on the floor. I think next year is going to be huge because they're bringing in three guys who can who can do who can make plays off the dribble and not just like give the ball to Caleb Weston and watch and watch and watch. DJ Carter is the best point guard prospect they've had since D'Angelo Russell and before that Michael Conley. I'm not saying that he's an NBA type of one and done guy like those two were, but he's the best point guard prospect they've had since Russell. Gaffney, I think can develop himself into a one-and-done guy just based off his sheer potential because he's 6'9", 190 pounds, and that seems to be what NBA guys are looking for in draft picks nowadays. And then EJ Little, EJ Little is another guy who I think in the low post can take some pressure off of Caleb Weston. I think right now they don't necessarily have a guy, guy outside of Caleb Weston that they can give the ball to, and so when he's not on the floor, well, the offense gets stagnant. But because he's in foul trouble so much, he's not on the floor long enough to get into a rhythm to get back to the 17 and 7 he was averaging before this five game stretch. Um, Caleb Weston and Andre Weston's mother, Stephanie, was very upset on Twitter mm-hmm. uh, after the game last night about mostly about the treatment um, of the Ohio State team by Michigan fans, but also was upset with the officiating. When you look at Caleb Wesson, the last several games, and you've talked about the foul trouble, is that on him? Do you feel like some of these foul call foul calls have gone against him that have been a little unfair or a little ticky tack? Or what does he need to do in terms of controlling his body, maybe being smarter on some things? Why has he been getting in foul trouble, and how can he stop getting in foul trouble? Some of it is just like. He's the big guy, and so things sometimes look worse than they are when, like, you know, the game gets physical. So some of it is on him. I think, and Chris Holman has said this, both Andre and Caleb are pretty physical players, and so that's going to invite foul trouble at times. But also, there's been a couple questionable calls over the last four or five games where, you know, if those calls don't happen, it may change the outcome of the game, not against Michigan, obviously, but against some of these other opponents, it could have changed the overall outcome of the game. I think because they happen so quickly, like he'll have one foul at the end of the first half, and then in the first two minutes, he'll pick up two straight fouls, and now all of a sudden he's in foul trouble all over again. And so I think some of it is on him, where he just needs to be smarter in picking his spots on when he's going to be physical, and some of it is you know questionable ref calls, and then some of it is just, it's unfortunate. You're the big guy on the court, and so it's going to, a lot of times, it just looks like you're fouling and not playing solid defense. We have a question, uh, reader question that I want to get to. Kaminsky underscore Zach, he's been asking some good questions lately. Uh, and you mentioned this, Stephen. What's the comparison between DJ Carton and Mike Conley? I hope Carton stays a few years, though. Um, and I want to expand the question to this, and you've already touched on DJ. When you look at the guys on this roster and you look at Wesson and Muhammad and everybody else who's going to be around 
next year when DJ Carton is here. How much better do you expect DJ Carton to potentially make all these other guys on the roster? And to me, knowing very little about DJ Carton, but covering Mike Conley, I mean, Mike Conley had a little teardrop runner that he could score in the lane when he needed to, but he just, the game was under his control at all times. He made everybody better. You were completely at ease with the ball in his hands. That if if DJ Carton can do any level of that, I would imagine he has the potential to make some of these guys a lot better than they are right now. Yeah, I think so. They're about the same size. They're both six one. DJ Carton got about twenty pounds of what Mike Conley was when he showed up in Columbus. I think uh, I'm not gonna like I said. I'm not gonna say that DJ Carton is gonna be a one and done guy. Ohio State like Mike Conley was even the end of the Russell was. But I'll say this. The major difference between this year's team and next year's team is they're going to have an actual starting point guard starting at point guard. I think right now, Keyshawn Woods and C.J. Jackson are solid basketball players, but neither one of them is a starting point guard at a Power 5 conference. And it, it's unfortunate, but that when they start, and a lot of times Holtman has started both of them at the same time, and you're practically, you pretty much have two backup point guards as you're starting, starting in your backcourt when if one of those guys was, Say C.J. Jackson was a junior this year and he'd be a senior next year, he'd be perfect to be D.J. Carton's backup because then you're only playing him 10 to 15 minutes a night. He can get you a solid eight eight or nine points, three or four assists maybe, and but the majority of the minutes are going to D.J. Carton. I think he's more talented than both of those two guys are. And right now, Jose just doesn't have a starting point guard on its roster. And next year, they're going to have... DJ Carton, along with Walker, who's a transfer, who's sitting out this year because he's a transfer, so eligibility reasons. Next year, they're going to have two guys who are solid point guards, not just two guys who would probably be more suited as backups. Steven, this has always been a question in my my time covering Ohio State for the last 14 years. It's always been interesting to me. Um, The time period when there was a lot of criticism of Big Ten football and Ohio State was dominating this league and and not getting as much credit for it maybe as they should have because the football programs around the league were down. Um, And then you get the basketball season, it was like, man, you know, Michigan State is Michigan State, and then Bo Ryan was doing that at Wisconsin, and then Beeline got to Michigan and was great, and Indiana and Purdue both have great basketball traditions. How good do you think basketball in the Big Ten is right now? It's the best. It's the de- I don't know if it's the most talented conference in the country, just simply because like you know, there's still Kentucky's the blue blood schools who are constantly getting these all American one and done type guys. But it's definitely the deepest conference in the country, and I think it's been so the last couple of years. The best, our best team is Michigan, without a doubt, and they tore Villanova apart in the Big Ten ACC Challenge, and that's I, I think our best team is better than a lot of other conferences best teams and our worst team is better than a lot of other conferences worst teams are so it's clear like like you said 10 teams have a possibility of making the ncaa tournament this year i know at most for most of the year there's been five or six teams ranked in the top 25 so just from a sheer you know we're the deepest, the Big Ten is the deepest conference in the country, which my fault makes it the best conference in the country because we have the most teams who are, you know, going to be having an opportunity to compete for a national championship, which also plays into, if we take it back to Ohio State, part of the reason why they went one and six in the conference, you, there's no nights off in this conference, regardless of if you're playing a Rutgers, if you're playing a Nebraska, if you're playing a Michigan State, or if you're playing a Michigan, 
know, every night you have to play at a high level because if not, you're going to have a month where you go one and six. Which which leads me to to my next question, Stephen. Which is, it's always been interesting. It's like Ohio State at Ohio State, football is king. But football is king in a conference where football around the league has struggled at times. Meanwhile, basketball wants to compete at the very highest level, yet it's in a conference where there's a lot greater depth and where you have a Hall of Fame coach like Tom Izzo and where you have programs like Indiana um, and Maryland that have great basketball traditions, better basketball traditions than Ohio State has. This is like the – this is the world – and, and, and there's been a lot of times, and I've written it a lot too. It's like you want your conference to be better, but this is what happens when your conference is good. This is I feel like Ohio State might be getting not and punished is the wrong word, but might be feeling the effects of its conference as much as any team in the nation right now because they don't have a superstar who can carry them by himself night to night. They're a solid team in a lot of ways, but like you said, in a league where you don't get a night off, where you don't have any easy wins, it is very easy for a team like this Ohio State team, when they don't have Kata Bates-Diop to make life easier for them, to all of a sudden have a month like January where you might be pulling your hair out and saying, what is wrong with this team? And the answer really might be, well, there's nothing wrong with this team. There's just a lot right with the rest of the conference. This is what happens when your conference is good. Fans have asked for it. I've asked for it. It's great. Hey, we're in the Big Ten, but welcome to that reality. Which is why I think next year is going to be an interesting year. I think they're going to be a much better team next year because they're going to have recruits. It goes Chris Holtzman will have his guys in there, but more important is just having your guys and the majority on the roster. You're going to have guys who are four- and five-star guys on your roster. So now... Like, I'll, I'll take the, the Michigan State-Ohio State game was a prime example of the difference between Ohio State and a lot of teams in this conference. And you can even throw the Rutgers game in there and the Michigan game in there as well. Those teams had guys where when the offense breaks down, they're not robots. Ohio State doesn't, necessi- doesn't have that guy on the perimeter. Next year, they're going to have that guy. So you'll get a true indication of whether or not Ohio State can actually compete in the Big Ten. Because you, Xavier Simpson, uh, Jordan Poole, Cassius Winston, uh, Nick Nick Ward, these were the guys. Like Cassius, in the second half of that Michigan State-Ohio State game, Cassius Winston just took over the game. He had 18 points. Xavier Simpson did the same thing, and so did Jordan Poole in the Michigan game. They just took over the game because the offense wasn't working. The offense like, didn't have that guy to where, okay, well, we can't get the ball to Caleb, so now what are we going to do? And they've had it in a couple games, but that's just because guys have shot well. Luther Muhammad's still a freshman, and he's not a, you know, Zion or Cameron Reddish or R.J. Barrett-type freshman where, you know, he's out of here in six months. No, he's a guy that where he's going to look really good in 24 months. And the same thing with Dwayne Washington Jr. and the same thing with Jadal Adee and Justin Orange. Those guys are going to look really good in 24 months, but right now they're still learning how to compete at this level and gaining experience. That's going to look amazing in 24 months when the majority of your guys that you recruited are now upperclassmen and they're in the position that Jay Shante and Kata Bates Diop and Cam Williams were in, where they're, they're juniors and seniors and sophomores and being able to go, okay, we've been through this before, now we can go win games and go 25-8. But right now, it's going to lead to a 1-6 in six month. 
So I'm trying to think. I think this is right. Like if you think about there was like the Costa Cufis, Evan Turner, John Diebler recruiting class um, that were freshmen the year after uh, Ohio State made the national title game with Odin and Conley. That year they missed the tournament and they, they won the NIT. And then when those guys were in their second year, they were an eight seed and lost to Siena in the first round of the NCAA tournament. But they were building the foundation of the team that was a Sweet 16 team the next year when Evan Turner was the player of the year. And then all those guys were really important the following year when they had all those seniors supplemented by Jared Sullinger and Aaron Kraft and those freshmen. And that team probably should maybe should have won the NCAA title. They were number one much of the year and got upset in the Sweet 16. But when, when a, a lot of these Ohio State fans that are, are rooting for these guys right now, um, yes, they love the Odin-Conley team, and yes, they love you know some of these one-and-done guys, but I, their favorite team, it's the team that is playing in the basketball tournament that, again, by the way, this summer is going to return to Columbus. You're going to be able to watch David Lighty and Aaron Kraft and all these guys come back and play in Columbus. They loved that team. And those guys that they loved were not one-and-done guys. And those guys that they loved, Buford and Diebler and Lighty, they were not superstars in their first and second years. They grew in to what they became. And the best Ohio State team of recent vintage, and I think maybe even better than the Odin-Conley team in some ways, was that team where they had veterans like Diebler and Lighty and Buford supplemented by really high-level freshmen like Jared Sullinger, and you brought it all together. So if that's if that's what this is building toward, then this is a this is a worthy struggle, right? And if is that what you think ultimately Chris Holtman might do here, which is have these four-year guys who are really solid players? And, and I think that's what he did at Butler. But then the question I had is, could he supplement those type of guys with enough NBA guys here and there to get them over the top? But maybe the foundation of this class right now and then a guy like Carton, a one or two guys like that, will give you the Lighty, Diebler, Buford, Sullinger team that you love so much. Is that what they could be heading toward? Yeah, I think what... When you're not a blue blood school, when you're not a Duke or Kentucky or North Carolina or UCLA, when you're not one of those type of schools, I know UCLA is like having a down season right now, but they're still involved, like one of those schools where you're going to constantly every year be able to, you know, hit a reset button on your entire roster because you just lost four guys to the NBA. You have to build like that. You have to build guys with who are three and four star guys and that's where you build your foundation and your culture at. And then every so often you'll hit and you'll get a top 10, top five recruiting class. that has got a guy who maybe in a year or two is going to go to the NBA. Like Jared Sellinger probably could have gone to the NBA after his first year. He just decided to come back and then you know, he hurt his back and probably hurt his draft stock for a little bit. But that's what that might have did. He started off by building a foundation and then he hit with Greg Oldham and Michael Conley. Then he did the same thing again with Evan Turner and Don Diebler and David Lally. And then he hit again with that 2010 class where he had six guys who, I think that was the number one class in the country that year, if I'm not mistaken. I think that's right. And then, yeah, and then, again, and then all of a sudden, he, he started, what, what happened is he started trying to hit too often, and he got a D'Angelo Russell, but he forgot about what the formula that got him to that moment, so he kept trying to go after these All-Americans, and when he wasn't getting them, well, you saw a downward spiral in the, in the program. I think that's, when you're not a blue blood school, but you're still a Power 5 conference, that's how you have to approach things. There's a reset every four to five years where, okay, you reach the mountaintop and this is the year where it's either a championship or bust. And then you 
make your way back down, and then you recruit again and build another foundation. And then in two or three years, you'll hit again on a class that you'll get some guys who are saying, hey, there's something going on there. We could do something special here. So two or three of them will want to come play for you. But that's how you have to build things when you're not a blue blood school who can just reset every single year with NBA guy after NBA guy after NBA guy. I think next year is a solid class to build on as well. Like I said, Gaffney could turn into an NBA guy just based off his potential because of his, his makeup. But I think in 2021 and 2020, you're going to see one of those, either one of those two years of the year, you're going to see Holtman hit on one of those classes where, okay, now they're back into the, okay, could be one of national championship discussion. How Ohio State struggles this season prove Chris Holtman is building the basketball program the right way. That's your headline. That's a great headline. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, sir. Look at us talking out headlines. That's that's the only reason we have this podcast is so we can hash out story ideas. Um, Yeah, I think there there might be something to that, that you have to have a realistic understanding of – of what the what this is long term. If this is going to work long term under Holtman, I think the way you're describing building this, Stephen, is right. And it would make sense that early in this process, right? They, they last year was the exception to the rule because they had he inherited Kada and Jay Sean. But this actually, this is a foundational kind of season that you have to have. And maybe these kind of seasons, to your point, are going to pop up every four or five years. But then also what's going to pop up every four or five years is a chance to really make a run at the Final Four. And if that's the trade-off, if you're not Kansas or Kentucky or UNC or Duke, then probably that's that's what you have to do. Otherwise, you're going to be chasing fool's gold and maybe never get to what you want to be. Man, I'm going to look forward to reading that story, Stephen. I'm excited. All right. That was some in-depth basketball talk. We'll, we'll shift back now uh, to some football stuff. And you can always send us questions uh, to Gmail. We get to as many of those as we can. Um, that is BuckeyeTalkPod at gmail.com. CJ Straub has been sending good questions there for the last couple weeks, and I'm going to start with his. We didn't have quite as many Gmail questions this week. We had a bunch last week. We got to some. We didn't get to all. But this is a new one from CJ. Ohio State has seemed to flip-flop years of having championship offenses and defenses. When will the Stars align again to have both a championship-worthy offense and defense? And I think the point to that would be um, clearly in 2016 with with the secondary they had that was filled with first-round NFL draft picks. They had a really good defense and a, 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 an offense and a passing game that got shut out by Clemson, thirty-one to nothing. Um, and then you you saw in seventeen and eighteen some some defensive issues, especially in eighteen. That's the opposite of that. You have maybe the best offense in the country and a defense that that can't hold up. Let me frame the question for you this way, Stephen. When we think about 2019, and then maybe we can expand to when they think when we think they could be at this level on both sides of the ball. But in 2019, what do you think is more likely, a championship level offense or a championship level defense? Which one do you think will be better this year? I think championship level offense. One because they just got another five-star quarterback, and they have passing game coordinator who, you know, is a record-breaking guy at pretty much everywhere he's going. I just wrote a story about Mike Yushich, and you guys should go read it, just about how he's kind of, he's been a record-breaking guy everywhere he's gone. I think a lot of that, the offensive coaching staff is still here, which will also play into that. I think you change a lot of guys on defense. 
coaching staff-wise. And, like, we talked about this earlier. A lot of those – there's not a guarantee that a lot of the guys who, who are returning as far as defensive players are going to start next year. There's maybe about three or four of them total who will start. Um, so I think the offense is more likely to still be on pace of what it did last last year. I'm not saying it's going to break records, but it'll still be – it'll clearly be their better, you know, side of the ball. Before I answer – Tell the, the listeners, and again, go read the story that Stephen wrote about Mike Yurcich. What was it, what did you learn about Mike Yurcich in the process of reporting that story? And what would you tell listeners in terms of how confident they should be in terms of Yurcich working with Ryan Day on this passing game, given to the people, given the people you talked to about Mike? I think the biggest thing, I, I, first of all, from the way his coaches talked to me, this man had lived to pass the ball. He hated how much Euclid ran the ball when he was their quarterback, even though they had you know some really solid running backs at Euclid while he was in high school. Um, you should go look up who those people are, such as Robert Smith. But I think no one is surprised that he's coaching at such a high level. I think most of them are more surprised at just how quickly he's risen up, you know, Ten years ago, he was coaching at a Division II school, and now he's the passing game coordinator at Ohio State. I think that's that's the thing I took most from None of them are surprised at how good of a coach he is. He always kind of displayed that type of football IQ, even as a 17-, 16-year-old kid. I think they're more surprised at how quickly he's risen up. And I think the one thing you can expect is he's been able to do a lot with with little whether it was at a Division two school or it was at Oklahoma State with a walk-on quarterback, well, he's never really had the type of talent that he's going to have at Ohio State. And I think that's what's going to be interesting is, okay, you were able to break all types of records and put up all types of historical numbers when you were coaching, you know, at Edinburgh, excuse me, or Oklahoma State or this school. Or that, schools that just don't necessarily have the type of talent that Ohio State has the ability to bring in. And it's more of a, okay, let's see what he can do now. He's got a five-star quarterback and an offense who also just broke a lot of records and a coach who is pushing for, who wants this type, that type of, the, the way Oklahoma State played in a sort of way, that's the way that my, Orion Day wants to play. He wanted to play that way last year, and we saw what happened with Dwayne Haskins. And Ohio State just wasn't ready to do that the year before. But I think the combination of the type of coach he's been the type of number he's been able to put up as an offensive coach combined with the simple fact of Ryan Day wants that, I think that the offense is in for another big-time year. I'm going the other way. Really? I'm going the other way, and I, and I don't know if that's a good thing for Ohio State fans or a bad thing for Ohio State fans that, that we gave different answers on this, and we can discuss that after I say why I'm picking the defense. I... Maybe I'm wrong on this, but the thing that we've talked about on waiting for some of these guys to pop right now, um, I think between Teron Vincent and Tommy Togiai and Terada Mitchell and Tyreek Smith at defensive end, I think there's a chance for one or two guys to really pop and become, as first-time starters, all Big Ten caliber players. I think Chase Young is All-American quality. I think Jeffrey Okuda can be All-American quality. I think Jordan Fuller can be All-American quality. I think Baron Browning, if you get him on the outside, which is where he wants to play, and you let him go, I think he can be All-American quality. I think Malik Harrison can be All-American quality. 
I think there was such uncertainty, confusion, and a lack of confidence on the defense last year. I think it hid, in a lot of ways, some of the talent that was there. And I think they're going to add some of these guys who were first-year players last year and not ready to help, will be ready to help this year. So I think we could see an absolutely gigantic jump um, from this defense. I still have questions about Greg Madison. There seems to be a lot of buzz around Jeff Halfley. Um, I think there were coaching issues that they fixed, and I think there is hidden talent on this defense. And on the offensive side, you lost four starters on the offensive line. You lost those three senior receivers that you relied on so much. And I know Justin Field is a five-star, but man, Dwayne Haskins was a freak. And in a world, and we've talked about it before, in a world where the coaches said Dwayne Haskins, as a redshirt freshman, would not have been ready to do it, but as a redshirt sophomore, he was ready to do it, they're either lying or Justin Fields is in for an adjustment period. Because you're asking Justin Fields in his second year in college and his first year at this school to carry this offense. I believe in J.K. Dobbins. I believe in Demario McCall. I have questions about the offensive line. I have questions about the receivers. And I do not think life is going to be as easy for this quarterback as it was last year for Dwayne Haskins. But also, Dwayne Haskins made life easy for everybody else. So... I am pulling back on my offensive expectations, even though he's a five-star. And if Justin Fields comes out in spring football and lights the world on fire, I'll raise my hand and say that my doubts were wrong. But at the moment, I feel like there is hidden talent on the defense while there are legitimate questions to me on the offense. And I know we've talked about who's going to be the leading receiver and that kind of thing. K.J. Hill coming back is a big deal. But they're going to need a lot out of Ben Victor and Austin Mack and Garrett Wilson as a true freshman. Um, guys who who maybe haven't really done it before um, because they have a lot of production to, to, to make up for at the receiver position. I just have questions about that offense, and I think it's possible that, well, I think Yersich was a good hire. I just think I just think Shiano and Bill Davis and Tabor Johnson had that defense in a bad headspace a year ago, and I think if you free up some of those guys to let them be who they are, I think they could make a monumental leap and that this may be a team in 2019 that its defense is better than its offense. So... If that's my answer, Stephen, you're saying they could have a championship-level offense. I'm saying they could have a championship-level defense. That means they could have neither, but it also means they could have both, right? So so if, if you're right and I'm right, then, Everybody wins. then this is a team that could win a national title, right? Correct. So how, how, how possible is that? Like, can we plant that seed in people's minds right now? Could we both be right that both of them, and CJ's question was that, when will the stars align again to have both a championship-worthy offense and defense? Could that answer be this year? I think... Uh, I have a short answer and I have a long answer. The short answer is it's very 50-50 because they also do have a very tough schedule for Ryan Day to be a first-year head coach, especially in the Big Ten. Their Big Ten schedule is tough. I'm not, their non-conference schedule is tough. But their Big Ten schedule is pretty tough. The reason why I say the offense is the exact reason you, you said before you went into your spiel where, you know, there's I do not believe there is any way possible that Dwayne Haskins was not ready to take the field in 2017. I do not believe that. You do not go from not being able to 
being ready to take the field and be ready to play in that position, go from that as a quarterback to breaking all types of Big Ten and school records 12 months later. You don't do that. I do not believe that. I don't believe that line when they say it. I believe that the coaching staff was not ready, but when they go, Dwayne Haskins just wasn't ready yet. I don't believe that. I 100% stand by that, and I'm going to stand by that until the day I retire from this job, which is a long time from now. <laughs> very young. So y'all are going to deal with me for a long time. I do not believe that Dwayne Haskins was not ready to take that job. And just like I wrote that tape or tell thing, had JT Barrett not been a three-year starter, there's no way he would have taken the field over Dwayne Haskins in 2017. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why I say I think the offense is going to have another big-time year. Because, well, there's no excuse of, oh, Justin Fields isn't ready. No, or the real excuse, the coaching staff isn't ready. The coaching staff is ready to do this. I think Justin Fields, I don't think he has necessarily the level of arm that Haskins had because that was a once-in-a-generation arm at Ohio State. But also, he can throw the ball extremely well, and he's a better runner than Dwayne Haskins was as well. So that opens up an element that Dwayne Haskins, for the majority of the season, just didn't want to do. He didn't want to run the ball. It literally against the Nebraska game, he ran three inches with nobody around him and just fell to the ground. He had to develop that part of his game. Justin Fields doesn't have to develop that part of his game. I've seen some tapes of him. I, he already can do that. And I, somebody asked a question comparing him to Terrell Pryor. I don't know. That might be a bit of a stretch. It might not be a bit of a stretch. I know he's two, two 24-7 sports actually had him ranked as the highest player to ever come to Ohio State uh, above Terrell Pryor, who held that trophy or, or before Fields did, but I think that there's the excuses out the window of somebody isn't ready, whoever you want to name, somebody isn't ready. I think Brian Day is completely ready to 100% dive into that type of offense where that thing is possible. I think he showed that with who he hired as his passing game coordinator, pretty much the guy who's taking over the position he held last season. I think with the defense, yeah, there are guys you expect to, to step up into these roles, but they haven't done it yet. I think with that situation, it's more, you know, I expect it to happen, but I have to see it first to believe it, where with the Ohio State offense, you've seen what they have the capability of doing, and then now it's about building on that. Um, I do think um, that if it doesn't come together in 2019, uh, it might be 2020 because I wanted 100%. to look right now the idea and again someone asked the question what's the fear of Justin Fields being one and done he can't that was last week he can't be one and done Justin Fields in year two um, is a very exciting idea for Ohio State fans Justin Fields yeah. in year one is very exciting but Justin yeah. Fields in year two is is potentially really really exciting and I'm looking right now at the class of 2018. Which was the second class in a row. Seven, 2017 was arguably the best recruiting class in Ohio State history. And then the class of 2018 was arguably better than that. There were 12 guys, I guess 13 guys, in the top 100 players in the country. Again, right now, with the class they're bringing in, that they're adding to for this year's class, um, I think we said they had six guys in the top 200. Yeah. This class had 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13. Had 13 in the top 100. So that's how good the 2018 class was. 
Brian Sneed was one of those guys. He's gone. So there are 12 guys on this roster who are going to be second-year players in, in this coming season who are among the top 100 recruits in their recruiting class. Five of them were on offense. Seven of them were on defense. They are second-year players in 2019. They will be third-year players in 2020. They can't go anywhere. So if we're talking about a Justin Fields-led offense in 2020 and a defense that will have either as juniors or redshirt sophomores, Teron Vincent at defensive tackle, Tyreek Johnson in the secondary, Tyreek Smith at defensive end, Tarada Mitchell at middle linebacker, Tommy Togiai at defensive tackle, Josh Proctor at safety, Tyler Friday on the defensive line. That's what we're talking about. And that's part of why I'm enthused about the, the 2019 defense, because I'm excited to add guys like that to Browning and Young and Okuda and Malik Harrison. But then 2020, I think you could see a world where those guys blossom. Justin Fields is in year two, and you really could see this team put it all together for a championship run. Again, it's funny. Again, when's the last time they weren't a championship contender? I mean, they've been a championship contender every year of the Urban Meyer era, and they have a groundwork in place, mostly thanks to these 17 and 18 classes, to be a championship contender, at least in the first two years of the Ryan Day era, and then we'll have to see how he stacks recruiting classes behind him. But I think it's a very interesting question that CJ asked. We've talked about that. It's kind of been some bad luck. The way things have gone, again, put Dwayne Haskins on a team that has Marshawn Lattimore, Malik Hooker, Garyon Conley, and guys like that, and we'll see what happens. Um, but they sort of missed each other. But I do think it could be sooner than later that they get to a point where, once again, they are a championship-quality defense and a championship-quality offense. You know, they were that clearly in 2014. I think they had the players to be that in 2015. The offense struggled too often in 2015, given the players they had, but they haven't, I, I think in 16, 17, and 18, you would say they were not that. They were short on one side of the ball. I think maybe they could get to that point in 19. I think certainly they could be at that point in 2020. Uh, Bill Feeman is asking on uh, the Gmail email account, He's asking about the Michigan and Maryland defenses. My understanding of the Michigan and Maryland defenses, they account for three of the new coaching hires. That's Greg Madison and Al Washington from Michigan and Matt Barnes from Maryland. They play more of a base nickel defense and tend to play only two true linebackers. And the third is more of a heavy safety, such as Jabril Peppers, who really was, and I remember this at the combine with him, it's, he was sort of listed as a linebacker. He kind of played linebacker for Michigan, but everybody knew he wasn't really a linebacker. He was a safety in the NFL, and, and they kind of played him at that hybrid linebacker safety stop spot at Michigan because that's where he fit in their defense. Bill asks, I know Ohio State has done something like this in the past with the star position, but I thought Ohio State was very deep at linebacker and very thin at safety, so this, if this is a real shift, it worries me. Baron Browning is more naturally suited to outside linebacker. By what I wasn't sure if he was athletic enough to cover slot receivers the way the nickel base would require. Do you know if this is a shift Ohio State is considering, and do you think it plays against the talent on the roster? I'd rather see Browning play other than Wint uh, or Pryor at that spot. I think it's a good question, and I'll answer it this way. I think Ohio State, back to that star position, and God, I remember when they introduced that star position and started calling it that in 2006 or seven, and everybody was so like, oh, what is this? And like Dante Whitner could do it, and Jermail Hines did it, Tyler Moeller did it. It is that hybrid linebacker safety position that is required 
against spread offenses is required in the modern passing era of college and pro football. Um, Chris Ash liked to call it a walkout linebacker spot when they had that, and I just think that what you're asking about, Bill, what Jabril Peppers was at Michigan, if that's what Greg Madison wants to do, that's what Darren Lee was here, right? That's what Malik Harrison is here. So if Greg Madison wants to go that way, and we are going to see a world where the way they what they call themselves on defense is a base nickel where their normal defensive package has two linebackers. I think in that world, you could have a world where either Tough Borland or Toronto Mitchell's playing middle linebacker and Baron Browning and Pete Werner might be your other outside backer, but that hybrid safety linebacker spot is Malik Harrison. I think Malik Harrison absolutely can cover slot receivers. I think he's that type of guy. I think you need that type of guy. And so, Bill, if you're worried that you're not going to see the linebacker depth on the field and you're going to see more safeties, I think they could play a base nickel absolutely where Browning and Harrison are your outside backers and whoever's in the middle is in the middle. But I think both Browning and Harrison are athletic enough. You want your best 11 on the field. And then the real shift, Bill, is when you go nickel these days and what Ohio State did last year, that means a a third corner. That means a slot corner covering a slot receiver on an obvious passing down. And that's what Sean Wade did. I think that's what Sean Wade will continue to do. So that, that takes you from a base nickel to a more traditional nickel with five DBs, but you're not putting a safety on instead of a linebacker. You're putting a corner on the field instead of a linebacker. You have to be willing to make that adjustment when you need to, but many times in that situation, and maybe Ohio State would go this way, Baron Browning was on the field a lot in nickel. Tough Borland at middle linebacker came off. So some of these nickel spots, you take the middle linebacker out, or maybe if Baron Browning can play middle linebacker and outside linebacker, he can play a hybrid position like that. So if if the main concern is losing as many linebackers on the field, I think Ohio State in the last several years has always recruited to the idea of fast, skilled linebackers who can cover. I think they'll continue to do that. And if anything shifts with Greg Madison, it will be a shift in name in what we're calling Malik Harrison rather than a shift than a shift in personnel in terms of guys who are going to be on the field. That was a long answer. We'll get to Alan Kitchen with a question. A Kitchen 87, what is the percentage chance you give Ohio State of having a regression in the program? We've seen it happen to Alabama, Texas, USC. In the past, you've commented that Ohio State is immune to this. Do you still feel that way? When you think about this world, Stephen, that we're in right now, where they're coming off this unbelievable run, the one rough year in between, but otherwise 17 years of Jim Tressel and Urban Meyer, 10 of the first, 7 of the last, where they basically were the best team in the Big Ten almost that whole time. What What is your percentage chance, Stephen, that Ohio State as a program takes a significant step back? And I would I would consider a significant step back to be this. What is the percentage chance, Stephen, that Ohio State will no longer be viewed as the absolute best program in the Big Ten that, say, three years from now, it's obvious to everyone that Michigan or Penn State or Nebraska or someone has overtaken Ohio State for that title, and clearly Ohio State is not what it was under Urban or Trestle. What's your percent? Oh, so I don't know if I killed... So the one thing is... 
I talked for so long on that first answer. Steven said he was going to get food. Oh, wait. No, no, that's not it. Steven said he was going to get food delivered at some point in this podcast, and he was going to mute the phone for a portion of the food delivery. And I said that would make for interesting content because we'd like to talk about food here. We have a food question we're going to get to. I have a robot thing I want to get to later. But I think maybe he muted the, the line to get the food while I gave a four-minute answer about the nickel package. So um, let me go with my percentage chance first. And then, Stephen, when you hear, when you come back in, just start talking. Are you there yet? He's still muted. Um, my percentage chance of it taking a step back to a significant extent to no longer being the dominant program, because there's two ways to define it, right? When Texas and Alabama and USC, you know, Texas and Alabama are, are two stark examples. Uh, and again, I think what Alan is referencing is we did a series, and I would direct you to it still, um, called uh, Indestructible. And we decided that Ohio State was the most indestructible um, program in college football, right? And we we decided. Stephen, are you back? Yeah, I'm back. Sorry about that. I asked you a question. What what kind what what kind of food did you get? Oh, I got Bob Evans. I like breakfast food. You it's got like a nice day to get breakfast. You got Bob Evans delivered. Yeah, you don't know a DoorDash? No, no. DoorDash, get us a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, really. So, what's it called again? Um. The food or the place that no, delivers the food? No, the delivery system. It's not Uber oh. Eats. It's something else. DoorDash is like Uber Eats or DoorDash. DoorDash is like usually what a lot. If you like order online from the actual like restaurant, a lot of these places use DoorDash. And then the guy almost left because we were like having a really good conversation. And he was like ringing the doorbell. And then he went to go get back in his car as I like opened the door. And oh, it was, damn. Like, really cold outside. Man, I can't believe this. Pie- <laughs> so what did you get? Did you get some eggs or some pancakes or what did you get? I got pancakes, some scrambled eggs, um, some home fries, and some turkey sausage. All right, so Stephen Means at 4.47 on a Wednesday afternoon is eating pancakes, yep. scrambled eggs, home fries, and turkey sausage. Mad yep. respect for that choice, Stephen. Um, Breakfast food is good at all times of the day. It is. Are you a bacon guy or no? Um, turkey bacon, yeah. I don't eat pork, so like I don't you know. Okay. No, I, I, yeah, the breakfast meats, I think, need to be expanded uh, into the world yeah. <laughs> to limit them to one meal, I think is a is a is a poor choice. So I respect your uh, your desire to get the breakfast meats and expand their uh, horizons. Um, what we're talking about, Stephen, is the percentage chance of Ohio State taking a significant step back as a program. That was Alan Kitchen's question, and I define the significant step back as let's say in two or three years, it's clear that Ohio State is no longer the best program in the Big Ten, but. There's another way to define it, too, and I don't think I want to define it for this question as this, but when you look at Texas, Texas went through a stretch from 2014 to 2017, which is the three years of Charlie Strong and the first year of Tom Herman. Here were the records for Texas. Six and seven, five and seven, five and seven, seven and six. That is unbelievable. That is a four-year period of Texas where they have an overall losing record. That is an absolutely stunning thing to think about. And if we're defining that, let's break this down into two things then. Let's define it as they are no longer the preeminent team in the Big Ten. And then let's define it as could they have a five-year stretch of having an overall losing record. Um, No. 
I, let's do first not being the preeminent program in the Big Ten, being passed by another program in the next three years, let's say. What is your percentage chance that that could happen, that Michigan or Penn State passes them and like, Ohio State's good, but they're not really a top 10 program anymore. They're more like a top, you know, the 18th best team in the country, and they're not even the best team in their own division. I'm going to go 47.9, which is, like, really specific. But, like, I don't think – they're not set up the same way that I think like, – they kind of goes back to our conversation about the football Big Ten and the basketball Big Ten, but the basketball Big Ten is just so deep that, like, any like, like down period, any like down month could just like derail your whole season. I don't necessarily think the Big Ten in the football world is that deep. I think it's better, especially the the West Division. I think it's better, but I don't think it's to a point yet where like I could confidently say in the next two or three years, Ohio State will like no longer be like the premier team in the conference. But that is a pretty high. You're still saying it's almost a 50-50 chance you think that it could happen. Yeah, just because, you know, like you said, we like we haven't really seen Ryan Day and his coaching staff recruit, and we won't really get a chance to see exactly what type of recruiting class they can put together until 2020. So I don't think I can have it. At this point, I'll say 50-50 just because we don't know what Ryan Day can do as a head coach. I think after what we after what happens next season, you'll get a better you know, gauge of, okay, you know, is it, headed in that direction, or is Ohio State going to continue to be where Ohio State has always been? While Alabama, Alabama and Texas, they like you said, they had like real regression periods where like it took a whole new coach coming in there and just kind of shocking the culture. Ohio State, it's been a while since Ohio State's had to bring in a coach who's had to like completely revamp an entire program. Right. All right, so we'll get into those numbers a little bit because they are interesting numbers. I was just adding a couple of them up. Um, so if you're 47.9%, I'll say I'm maybe like 40%, 35%. Um, I was going to say maybe a one in three chance, like 33%. But um, I mean, to me, I, I definitely think, you know what, I think I think 40% is fair. 50% might be close to fair because, you know what, if, if the next three years Ohio State went nine and three, uh, eight and four and eight and four, like that wouldn't be, that is not unbelievable. That's not impossible to imagine. And if they do that, then they're not the best team in the Big Ten anymore. So, so, so that I think is is possible. And that would, I don't think that would require failure. That would require a small step back in recruiting, some bad luck. Um, a tougher conference than what, for instance, Jim Tressel dealt with, and just a reality, a, a realistic view that Urban Meyer is one of the all-time greatest coaches, and if Ryan Day's not, then maybe you're going to have some eight and four seasons. So I do think I won't go as high as forty-seven point nine, but I'll go as high as forty percent. That I think to regress to the point where they're not the best team in the Big Ten year in and year out, I think is possible. Let's think about the the true regression, though. And again, we'd said that that Texas. Over a four-year period between 2014 and 2017, had an overall losing record. I just added up Alabama. Alabama between 2000 and 2007, which is the first year of the Nick Saban era. Nick Saban went seven and six his first year, but that's the Mike Shula, Dennis Francione, Mike DeBose era, which is unbelievable to think about the guys who they ran through there. That is a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year period. 
where Alabama's overall record was 53 and 46. They had two 10 win seasons in there, but they also had three and eight, seven and five, four and nine, six and six, six and seven, seven and six. That is an absolute eight year run of true, true mediocrity. What are the chances of that? What are, and let me define it as this. What are the chances, Stephen, of Ohio State hitting such a sustained period of mediocrity that Ryan Day gets fired? I think that's possible. I, I think part of that was Alabama was also in what at the time was the toughest conference in the country, in the SEC. So that probably paid into it a little bit. And Texas just completely fell off after Mac Brown left. I don't think Ohio State's going to ever get to that point in the near future where it's like they go from this team who 11-1 and one is like, oh, man, could we have played for a championship or not? All of a sudden, you know, we're going 7-6 and six and 6-6 six and 4-9. Six and and I don't think we're ever going to – Ohio State's ever going to get to that point um, simply because you – know, like I said, Alabama was in the toughest co- conference in the country at that time as well, and Texas completely fell off. I don't like. I don't think the Big Ten is the Big Ten isn't the best conference in the country, in my opinion. Um, and I don't think Ohio State looks like they're into a point where like it's going to get so bad that like Ryan Day is getting fired. I don't think it'll ever get to that point. That would be quite a miraculous thing. Um, yeah. What What was your percentage on it? I'm going to go, like, 15, you know, just because, I mean, things happen. Like, you get unlucky with some recruiting. If you got unlucky with, like, one or two recruiting classes, sure. But, like, that would be the only way that would happen. That wouldn't just, you know, they wouldn't just start losing going 6-6 six and six for, like, a four- or five-year stretch. Right. So, like, when you look at Ohio State and you think about basically since Woody, um, what what would be the closest thing to a stretch like that? So we're talking – 1979, we're talking about in the last 40 years, what is the closest thing to a sustained stretch of, of troubles for Ohio State football? It's the end of Earl Bruce and the start of John Cooper. Earl Bruce in his last year went 6-4-1. and one. Cooper's first year was 4-6-1. and one. So that's a two-year period where they're a 500 team. They're 10-10-2. But then... Cooper started to build a little bit. He lost four straight bowl games. He went eight and four, seven, four and one, eight and four, eight, three and one, right? And so that's not great by Ohio, by Ohio State standards, but it's not it's not a losing record. And it's, no, it's, it's not six and six. And it's building to something. And then Cooper won 10, 9, 11, 11, 10, 11. And then he had Six and six and eight and four his last two years. Then he got fired. So yes, he was losing to Michigan in those in those years. Yes, they were falling short, but it's because they were falling short of what people thought should have been the best team in the country. He was recruiting nationally. He was recruiting at a high level. You know, Charlie Strong got three years and got whacked. Those Alabama coaches I talked about, Mike DeBose and Dennis Francione and Mike Shula. You know, Mike Shula got three and a half. Got four years. Francione got two years. Mike DeBose got four years. They got fired for for failing. John Cooper had a good long run here, and and he's in the Hall of Fame. You know, like he he didn't lose not even close to the way that we're talking about these fired coaches at Texas and Alabama lost. So, yeah, I think I agree with you. I, to, like Ryan Day would just have. There's so much in place here with the recruiting base, and it's not as much of a recruiting base as it used to be, but it's still the best recruiting base in terms of 
in-state talent that there is in the Midwest. There's not another program in the state to really challenge them. Um, there's so much in place with the facilities and the money here. Um, Ryan Day would absolutely just have to be an absolute miss for them to get to that point where next year, you know, they're they're four and eight. And I just, I almost can't, I almost can't picture that, Stephen. Like I almost don't. Like what would that look like? That Ryan Day would be such a miss that that they like they go eight and four this year and they follow that up with four and eight and five and seven the next two years. Like I almost think that's like a like five percent. I don't even know like what would lead to that. Just that like he can't lead, he can't run a program. There's infighting. Like what would it be that would cause them to fall off a cliff like that? It would literally take a six and seven year, and I don't think he'd get like four or five years like like Charlie Strong did to like fix that because unlike Charlie Strong, like Texas and Alabama. Alabama also has to fight with Auburn for recruits, in-state recruits. Texas has to fight with Texas A&M and Texas Tech and so on and so forth for recruits. Ohio State is fighting with Cincinnati, Kent State, uh, uh, mid-major schools pretty much for for, for their own in-state recruits. So, like, they pretty much have a monopoly on if this guy is a four-star recruit and he wants to stay home, if Ohio, I don't care who he's looking at, the minute Ohio State offers him, his entire, you know, game plan for where he wants to go to school changes 100%. Ryan Day, so Ryan Day wouldn't even get the chance to do what Charlie Strong did and go have this, like, long stretch of being an under 500 team while he tries to figure it out, I don't think, because of, you know, the situation he's in in comparison to what Texas and Alabama are in. He's not fighting with the thing that Alabama and Texas have to fight it. So you're not going to see a six and seven, five and seven, five and seven. You'll see a six and seven, and then the next year he's on the hot seat. And if it's anything close to that, he's out of here. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And and the other comparison that is obvious is an obvious one um, here in the Big Ten is to what Michigan went through with Rich Rodriguez and Brady Hoke, where over a seven-year period of Brady Hoke and Rich Rodriguez, Michigan was a combined 46 and 42. Um, but but the difference there is everybody at Michigan like hated Rich Rodriguez from the minute he got hired, it felt like. Everybody was sort of like, this isn't a fit. Ohio State's in on Ryan Day. Like If Ryan Day doesn't work, um, that will be a surprise, I think. To, to fans and the administration um, and to the people in Ohio. Rich Rodriguez, people kind of knew from the start that was off. Then they sort of reached for a Michigan guy as a counterbalance. And as happens so many times, you compound a mistake by trying to go so far um, the opposite way that that you just you, you err in the other direction. And so they did that, and now they finally settled on Jim Harbaugh. But you know, the world, I, I think like Ryan Day, what started Michigan on the wrong path was Rich Rodriguez, and like already Ryan Day is not Rich Rodriguez be- because he's not, because people at Ohio State aren't like marching around saying you hired the wrong guy. So um, I, I just, I, I think it's a very, very interesting question. It's why we did that series a couple years ago, and I think it's an interesting question by Alan, but I think I think most fans would agree that if we're maybe in the 40, 40 to 50% that, 
you know, a couple years from now, Ohio State's not the top team in the conference, but you're more in the 5, 10, 15% range of them absolutely falling off a cliff. Yeah, I think more realistic, if, like a failure for them is like kind of what Michigan's doing with Jim Harbaugh right now, where it's 10 and 3, 10 and 3, 8 and 5, 10 and 3. I think that's more realistic as far as like if they did regress, it would regress to that. And regress to like where you're losing the Michigan game and that frustrates yeah. you and. And you're having a hard time with Penn State, and that frustrates you, but not to the point. You're still a top 25 team in the country. You're not out there losing to Maryland and Indiana on a regular basis. Nikki Unders and Paul, who is at Jaeger 3, both have a basketball question. And so I'm going to pin you down on this, Stephen. We kind of already talked about it, so we don't have to go into this very much. But Nikki Unders says, how realistic is a tournament bid for the basketball Buckeyes? And Paul says, playing the schedule game, it looks like the basketball team could still be on the bubble when it enters the Big Ten tournament. Do you still do you see that being a possibility? Um, uh, this is the time of year when everybody wants to talk about the bid and the bid and that kind of thing. Uh, you mentioned this before. Is it basically your opinion that they are going to be on the bubble entering the Big Ten tournament and they're going to either need to win it or maybe have a great run at least to the final to have a chance to get in. Is that what your expectation is? Yeah. Right now, they're number nine in the South region, according to Joe Lodardi. But, like, at this point, they, if they want to guarantee a spot, you win it. And if you want to, like, be on the, like, you know, the inside of that bubble, like the first four in or first four type of thing, um, you need to at least get to the Big Ten semifinal of the tournament. Okay. Ma- bare minimum. And that's going to be one of those where it's always one of those things, Stephen, and, and this happens um, so often when you start talking about bubble stuff and late game, you know, late in the year, you want tough games. And it's yeah. like they're tougher to win, but like if they're a lower seed in the Big Ten tournament, like if they're like the nine seed or something, or the, like they're going to be playing tough, they're going to have to play multiple tough games and need to, to win multiple tough games, but they're going to have a chance to do it. And that's where you talked about the depth of this league. They could play, I mean, what, they could play like four four tournament teams in the Big Ten tournament, potentially, which means you better play well, but it also means you have a chance to all of a sudden pick up some of those important wins that you're not just beating, you know, some lousy Rutgers team in the first round. You're winning significant games, and so the conference is your worst enemy and your best friend at the same time, that... You could have a month like January because the league is deep, but then also when you need it in March, you're going to have a shot at good wins because there's going to be good teams out there to play either late in the regular season or in the Big Ten tournament. And also, just simply, I mean, you got hot. If you get hot around that time, maybe that plays into the committee's minds. This team is hot right now, and they might be able to do something in the actual NCAA tournament. So if you use the Big Ten tournament as a way to kind of build some, some momentum, and you get into the tournament, maybe you do some damage, maybe you don't. I don't know. That's just, you know, that's a wild thought. But yeah, if, but some of that matters sometimes. A team that may be able to, they look at it and go, okay, if we put them in, they may be able to bust some brackets or, you know, you know, build momentum and take that into the tournament. So that matters. 
Joe underscore OSU, I mostly want to acknowledge this question. Will Ohio State get a grad transfer offensive lineman, and will that guy be in position to start? Um, again, that's that Jonah Jackson guy. I think I have the name right, right? The Rutgers guy that we yeah. talked about. Um, I think it's it's something that's on people's mind. I think people are aware of the offensive line depth issues, and so Joe is on that track with us. I, I don't know. I don't. They're not going to pass on a top 150 high school kid to get a grad transfer, but I think there's certainly a world where among the things that could happen is a grad transfer offensive lineman because they know they need depth and they need, I think, some help early because a lot of the depth they do have out at the offensive line is younger guys. Lewis Picklesemer at Buckeye Talk Fan 1. Man, what a Twitter handle. Buckeye Talk Fan 1. Thanks, man. Warms my heart, Lucas Picklesemer. Who wins in a boxing match, Doug or Steven? Old man strength is underrated. Love the pod. Keep it up and get back to that five-star. So I appreciate the fact that Lucas is saying that old man strength is underrated. The problem is I don't have any old man strength. (laughs) No, not happening. I'm just old. I don't know what's the opposite of old man strength. Just old man. Old and crepid. I mean, so I never like to talk about this, but like, I know, Stephen, that you play basketball a lot. Do you also, like, do you go, like, lift weights or anything ever? Yeah, yeah, like, I'm in pretty good shape. All right, so, like, how much, like, can you bench press? That's a thing, right? Is that what people talk uh, about? Yeah, um, I have to do math now. I'm going to not count on my fingers because I don't do that. It's normal. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Five times. I'd say maybe 225, probably. Okay. Yeah, that's a pretty good. So what does? I wanted to go max that, but I'm not going to do that because I don't do sports anymore. But you know, what what does the bar weigh? Forty five pounds. Forty five. That would I could probably bench forty five pounds. I my do more than that. I don't know that I could for real. If we want to, like, if we're looking for off season content and we want to do a live podcast from the gym where we try to find out what I can actually bench press, I would be down for that. My arms are like noodles. My arm, like if, if I take my fingers and spread them apart, the width of my arm, like just below my shoulder, is the same width of my arm at my wrist. I, there is no difference. My arm is a stick. So I'm long and lean, but it's like no, it's a noodle. It's a, just, it, there's, I, I, as much as on this podcast, we've called Alex Hornibrook a noodle arm. I am a noodle arm. And so um, I would have a reach advantage on you, but when my punch got to you, it would have no effect. Uh, uh, Here's what you should start doing. Okay, like, who takes the groceries in when you guys go grocery shopping? Who do you guys have to do that? You? We have someone deliver our groceries usually now. Are you serious? Yeah, Yeah. we're we're too late. (laughs) Too lazy slash busy. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if I'll ever get to that. I know I had food delivered today, but I don't know if I want somebody delivering my groceries. Yeah. But I was going to say, like, if you, well, that just took my whole idea out the window. What I was going to say is, like, what I used to do as a kid, and I kind of still do it, um, I'll take all the groceries at one time because I don't like to make two trips. Oh. Like I said, you could, yeah, you can start there because that gets kind of heavy if, like, you've got milk and, like, you know, a whole bunch of fruit, maybe a watermelon. Okay. Uh, I don't know what's in your guys' grocery, in your guys' refrigerator, but yeah, you can start with that. Like, Take all the groceries in at one time. I, I will Don't hurt yourself though, because you know. Well, that could definitely. I mean, <laughs> I, I did see. I was at the. Uh, I always go to the gym in January for like a month, and then I give up. 
but yeah, I was at the gym. The whole New Year's New Me thing. Yeah, that's me. It's the it's the same old crap. They get me every time. Um, I was at the gym the other day, running on the indoor track, and there was a guy at the gym walking the track like with his winter coat on, carrying a bag of groceries. As he, genius, as he was walking at the gym, and I was like, that guy is just doing like a real world workout. He's just like, I want to make sure. He was like an older guy, and it's like, I think you want, you know, I want to make sure I can carry my groceries. So I'll just carry my groceries at the gym. And I thought that was an interesting workout. So you, you have inspired me, Stephen. I think next time I'm at the gym, I may take my groceries with me. I'll have them delivered to the house, and then I'll take them to the gym with me. I mean, don't take anything that's supposed to get refrigerated. It's like, I mean, that's like a terrible thing to tell your family like hey the milk went bad because i wanted to go work out like, yeah it's just not a you know <laughs> rotten milk rotten curdled what's that smell oh that's just some old guy carrying curdled milk along the tr- around the yeah. track um that every tuesday all right we'll get to a couple more football but fast eddie at edward waller asked rank your top five ethnic foods for example german mexican polish chinese oh, wow. american it, what is your uh, Italian would be in there? What is like your what's your number one at least? Chinese. Really? Yeah. Chinese food. Oh yeah, I love Chinese food. I'm uh I'm big on the Mexican. I, I love a tamale, love an enchilada, love a burrito. Um, but I think I would probably go uh, uh, Mexican, um, Italian, Chinese. I go. I don't really have a top five, so yeah, I'll go top three. Um, Chinese, Italian, and then like Caribbean food. Oh, nice! A little like yeah. jerk, jerk stuff. Yeah, like jerk chicken and stuff. I love jerk chicken. I'm in with yeah, the jerk. I'll go there. I'm in with the jerk. Uh, John Myers at JT Myers twenty eight asks, "Do you get to eat the fast food feast that Trump laid out at the White House? Oh God! What's on your plate? What unholy combinations, for example, McDonald's fries and a Wendy's frosty, are you making?" Oh, God. Um, first of all, that was awful that he fed them that. Come on now. But um, I'll say the Frosty, a vanilla Frosty. Yeah. For sure. Um, I'll probably just get some fries. And uh, what this, like, is Chipotle fast food? Can we content? Like, it's technically, it's pretty quick. It, it's it's fast casual. I don't think they had Chipotle at the White House. No, but of it's course fast not. casual. No, yeah. Not yeah. Not I'll say. Okay, well, since it wasn't the white, I'll just go with um, a chicken nugget from Wendy's then. Nice. I, I do. We had this conversation. Landis, back in the day, said in Philadelphia they used to eat pizza and fries together from the That's same disgusting. place. So, but, but the other night, I was in a hurry to go somewhere, and uh, I drove through Wendy's, and the fries were awful. But, it, like, when you get a hamburger, you always have to get something on the side, right? And I've had so many bad experiences from a multitude of fast food places where the fries are soggy and cold and you're eating them in the car. And there's nothing worse. That is a life reevaluation moment that I have had time and time again when you're eating cold, soggy fries in the car by yourself. And you think, but you think, how did I get to this place in my life? What am I doing with my life? This is the best I can do. Really? This is my world? So to me, if I am in that situation where I could have a burger, but I would have an option for the side, because a burger itself is never enough, I would want, I know he had Domino's at the feast, Trump had Domino's, I would want to eat like a Wendy's burger, and instead of fries, I'd eat like a piece of Domino's as my side. 
So I don't want fries and pizza together. I want burgers and pizza together. Because you never get that. that. Right? Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Because I just want something other. I just need something with my burger. And I don't want it to be a fry. All right. uh, A couple more questions we're getting to. Come on now, uh, Twitter. Okay. Um, You know what? We want to do... We we are getting a lot of Justin Fields questions. And Steven said you you said you've watched some highlights and stuff. How about we plan before spring football? And spring football is always going to start in early March. Um, So once we get through signing day, which will be next week, um, we'll sort of wrap up signing day a week from now. Sometime in February, we will do a Justin Fields podcast. And we will answer all your questions about Justin Fields. We'll try to talk to other people about Justin Fields. We'll make sure that both of us have dug in on some Justin Fields film. We'll read up on him. And we will dig in on everything you can possibly want to know about Justin Fields going into spring football. We'll also preview spring football from a larger perspective. But we will bring you a Justin Fields podcast um, in the future. So I'm, I'm going to hold off. Oh, did I? Hello? Man, someone called in and, man, hello? You hung up on me. A robot called me. God, I'm losing it. A robot telemarketer called me. Do not disturb, man. And I hung up on, but if I put it on do not disturb, then can I still talk to you? Yeah, it's just nothing else comes through the phone. Oh, are you still there? Do not disturbs the moon, right? Yeah. All right, I just put on the moon. All right, your yeah, moon. Just means like, yeah, like the, any other text message you'll have or any other call, you'll have to actually go to your text app to like see if anybody's like contacting you. All right, I mooned you. That's what I'm going to call it. Okay. I mooned you. I mooned Steven. Um, okay, so so um, we're going to do a Justin Fields podcast in the future. We will dig in on that, and we're not going to get to Justin Fields' questions right now. We're approaching two hours. There's a couple more I want to get to. Interesting question from John Myers at JT Myers 28 why will the run game be better in 2019? You're losing starters. There's a step back at quarterback. Same coach. Isn't the real challenge for Ryan Day that, the run game, more so than the pass game? When we think about the run game, Stephen, no Mike Weber. You're losing four starters on the offensive line. You have J.K. Dobbins back, Thayer Munford back, but certainly some questions there in the run game. And as we went over last week, J.K. Dobbins, like yards per carry were way down last year. Why should people believe the run game will be improved in 2019? I'll go. I'm not going to say the run game as a whole will be better. I'll say J.K. Dobbins as a running back will be better, and I think a lot of that is there's less confusion. There's less, you know. Okay, it's my series. Okay, no, it's Mike's series. Okay, it's my series. Okay, it's Mike's series. No, it's all J.K. Dobbins all the time with Demario McCall probably thrown in there as like a third down back, but for the majority of the time. J.K. Dobbins is going to be getting the touches, which I think can help him get into a better rhythm. Um, in some of the games this year, they did go that route, and J.K. Dobbins put together solid days, or Mike Weber would have a solid day. I think the line is still up for question just because you know we don't know what the full starting line will look like yet. Obviously, we know that certain people will still be on the line, like Barry Murford but, and Wyatt Davis, but we don't have what the entire line will look like. But I think as a running back, J.K. Dobbins will be better because there's less, you know, of a back and forth and more all him so he can catch a rhythm every game and running the ball. And you'll see a more consistent, you know, effort from him. 
I think that they struggled for a, a lot of it last year was the RPO stuff, and we've written and talked about that. The offensive line didn't like it. I think Ryan Day learned some lessons about they don't need to go 100% away from RPO, but they can, they need to find a way to make the offensive line comfortable with it. I think that will improve. Um, and I think a lot of times, like young offensive linemen, Josh Myers, uh, his team ran the ball all the time in high school. Josh Myers is ready to run block right now. With young offensive linemen, a lot of times what you're – what you're concerned about is is pass protection and the footwork with that, the technique with that, blitz pickup, working together. We saw how well the offensive line worked in unison in the Michigan game. It wasn't like that the whole year. So I do think there may be an opportunity early where as you're easing Josh Myers and Wyatt Davis and maybe some of these other guys on the interior, Matthew Jones or Max Ray or whoever else is going to win a job on the inside of the offensive line especially, they're going to want to run block. Every time things go wrong, offensive linemen want to run block. So I think you may have to run. I don't think you want to put everything on Justin Fields' shoulders right away. I don't think you want to put too much on the offensive line right away. And I think the best way to ease them in will be to let them run block, let J.K. Dobbins do his thing. And I think perhaps by necessity and by some of the things they learned in 2018, I think the run game in 2019 could look better overall. And they may need it to look better as you ease the pass game in with so much that has changed there. Mr. Henderson at Fichter Factor. Any chance that Demario McCall passes J.K. Dobbins and becomes the starting running back in 2019? Hashtag free Demario. I'm all for the hashtag free Demario, but no, J.K. Dobbins is going to be the starting running back next year. They're just different kind of guys. I don't think Ohio yeah. State just sees Demario as much as a between-the-tackles kind of runner. I think one of the best things J.K. Dobbins does is find a way to squeeze through small holes on the interior. He turns himself sideways and, and shoots gaps. Um, I don't think that's Demario's game. Demario's, I think, more of an in-space back. So I think there's absolutely a way. Uh, I think you know Steven and I are both down with the hashtag. Um, I think there's a way where J.K. Dobbins and Demario McCall can play off each other, can complement each other in a very effective way. But I think you're between the tackles inside runner is no doubt about it, J.K. Dobbins. I think he's your, your first and second down guy. It doesn't mean Demario McCall will never do it, but I don't think that and I don't know that even Demario. I don't think Demario McCall would disagree with this. The idea of like Demario McCall getting like twenty three carries and trying to run for one hundred and fifty yards and like pounding the ball with Demario McCall. I don't know that that's the best thing for him or this offense, and I don't think that would ever be a way they would want to go. And I even think if like something happened to J.K. Dobbins, if he was injured for a game or something, they might go with Master Teague and keep Demario more in a complimentary role because I just think that might be the best way to get the most out of Demario McCall, but absolutely, they certainly do need to use him more, and I think they will use him more um, than they have in the first couple years, and I hope they finally get it right. All right, let's do uh, let's do one last one here, and this is a really interesting one. This This could get long, but I think it's worth touching on at the very least, and again, we might get into this kind of thing later. At Nabby Kankles 4, Simi can't stand your bits, Jr., Man, these Twitter names. Simi Can't Stand Your Bits is the name. The handle is Nabby Kankles for. Will Dwayne Haskins change the narrative of Ohio State quarterbacks in the NFL? I thought Troy Smith would do it, but it seemed as if teams gave up on him too fast. I watched him a lot in the NFL, and he was still pretty accurate and pretty mobile. There is another world where Troy Smith doesn't get mono in training camp and sort of opens the door for Joe Flacco which is what happened. There was a Joe Flacco-Troy Smith quarterback battle at one point, and Troy got sick, and that kind of put him behind. 
there's a world where like everything that Joe Flacco has done, Troy Smith does. And I don't mean to be like a, a rose-colored glasses Homer Ohio State guy, but I thought Troy had a shot too. I think Troy had enough arm, had enough mobility, was smart, was tough. I just think I, I think it got away from him, sort of by circumstance, sort of because he was a smaller guy. Um, roll out every time. So. I, I just think that it, it he he might have needed a perfect structure for Troy to really hit it big. But I think maybe that perfect structure was out there, and he just didn't get it. And I think there is a world where Troy Smith could have had a much more productive NFL career than what he had. Um, I guess my answer on this, Stephen, is will Dwayne change the narrative of Ohio State quarterbacks? I don't know that one guy can do it, but I think it's possible that Ryan Day changes it. Yeah. And the Ryan Day quarterback narrative is what brought Justin Fields here. But if this becomes a world where Ryan Day is respected – as a passing game innovator, as a quarterback developer, even Tate Martell was talking about how, how Ohio State's offense with Ryan Day is like an NFL offense. If Dwayne Haskins did it, and then Justin Fields does it, and then Jack Miller does it, I think it won't be Dwayne Haskins alone, but it could be what Ryan Day does that changes a world where Ohio State really has not had a successful long-term NFL quarterback for a very long time. I think Ryan Day might change that. Yeah, I agree with that sentiment. I think what Dwayne Haskins does is is kind of throw that first warning out there, like, "Hey, this might be happening over here." Um, and now, just what, depending on what Justin Fields is going to be able to do this year, it's like, okay, there's something serious here. And then Jack Miller and on down the line. But I think Dwayne Haskins is definitely like, if if this is the case, if ten years from now, maybe I don't know, that may be too far out, but you know, Ohio State is now known as like a QB factory. I think we'll look back on Dwayne Haskins and say that's where that all started. But it was a, in a world where like Jim Tressel wasn't necessarily looking for an NFL quarterback, and Urban no, Meyer, no. Urban Meyer clearly wasn't looking for an NFL quarterback. They were looking for quarterbacks to win and run their systems. I think Ryan Day, the way Ryan Day wants to win in college, I think he's looking for an NFL quarterback. Yeah. And we'll see. We saw that with Fields, and I think Jack Miller kind of fits that mode of like a pro. He's not looking for the dual threat guy; he's looking for the pro style guy, pretty much. All right. So it was another week. What's that? Did I did, did a robot get you? No, I'm good. What? How much food have you eaten so far? Um, I'm almost done with the pancakes, and like I'm getting ready to start on these eggs over here. So is if you ate this at four forty five, is this dinner? Or a super late lunch, or do you, did you just did you just eat? Well, I'm, I just ate. I'm a night owl anyway, so I'll probably eat around like nine thirty, okay. um, ten o'clock. Yeah, so I don't know. I'm yeah, I'm a night person. So, but I thought you got up and played basketball at six a.m. That doesn't mean I'm not a night person. So when do you sleep? How can you be a night person and a morning person? I sleep. Um, I sleep in intervals. It's weird, but I sleep in intervals. Okay. All right, we'll get into Stephen Means sleeping patterns now, well, even more. And night owl just means that you're probably up till like two. It doesn't mean I'm up till like seven thirty in the morning. Yeah, but if you're up till two and you were playing basketball at six, that's not a lot of sleep, man. Yeah, I'm twenty. I'm twenty-four. Oh my god! All right, I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get a hearty eleven hours sleep tonight. So uh, <laughs> that's too much sleep. I'll sleep enough for the both of us. All right, thanks to you guys as always for listening to another Buckeye Talk from Cleveland.com. Follow us on Twitter at Stephen underscore Means, at Doug Maurice, and at Buckeye Talk Pod. 
The basketball team continues. Signing day is a week ahead. Spring football is right around the corner. And as always, there will continue to be a lot of things to write about and talk about with Ohio State sports. So we appreciate you guys making Buckeye Talk part of your week. Um, You can drop reviews on iTunes. We didn't get to the reviews this week. There's still lots of good ones, and we're still not at a five-star. So we'll take anything you got. We always appreciate that. But most of all, we appreciate you guys taking time out to give us a listen. So we weren't together in person because we didn't want to get cold. We will get back together in person soon enough. But for now, for Stephen Means, I'm Doug Maurice. And that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>